This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Friday. Happy, happy Friday the 13th. Is it happy? Yeah. I was trying to think, how do you express this day? I think think it's happy Friday, 13th. Hmm. Uh, and I hope you don't die. That's I think that's the whole phrase you use. Happy Friday 13th. I hope nothing bad happens to you. Okay. Which, by the way, is the, it's ex- pretty much the exact same quote as White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, <laughs> who said, hey, I, I don't think I'm being fired today. No. Which no. is a strange phrase. Or more, he also said he wasn't quitting. Yeah. Not quitting, not being fired. Meh. But that was he, it was one of his rare camera appearances. And he, for some reason, made that. But he he made that statement, I think, on uh, Thursday the 12th. Yes. So not really a Friday the 13th statement. No. So today you could all just sit there and say, hey, happy Friday the 13th. I'm not getting fired today. How are you celebrating today? Um, I'm probably going to do something really dark and scary. Like? Just sit in my office in a dark room. Oh, okay. Take a long nap. You're not going to watch any movies? No. I've been working a lot lately. You had a speech yesterday. How'd that go? Yeah, it was awesome. Hundreds of law students. It was fun. You talked to law students. Did you lead with a lawyer joke like I recommended? No, didn't lead with one. Mm. Uh, I don't. I don't even think I. Nope, didn't use one lawyer joke. Really? That that's your like key audience for lawyer jokes. I know, but my topic was I was talking about how lawyers are more likely to commit suicide. Couldn't you found a, a happy lawyer joke? Yeah, could you find one for me? Well, no, it's a little late. No, that's the thing. No, I don't think there is one. I don't even think you looked. I don't yeah. think there is a happy You could find time. positive jokes. Okay. I mean, try I, to find one. Just, just try to find one. Okay. Tomorrow, by the way, I get to speak uh, to oh. with the governor of the state of Utah and the first lady. Not with them. I'm speaking for one of their one of their benefits. Interesting. So I'll I'll talk about you. Really? Because the governor was here and you guys were hanging out for a bit. Well, actually, I only talked to his wife. Oh, you did? Yeah, he was in the back of the pack as we were walking up the stairs. Oh, really? I just talked to her. Did security keep you away? Um, No, they were concerned with the governor. Yeah. They, but, got, uh, they, li- they liked him. It was, call him the governor. The only concern was, depending on the type of shoe she was wearing, if she wanted to walk up the stairs or use the elevator. Yeah, what was what decision was made on that one? Um, she decided to take the stairs, so she had the heels on. Probably, I asked her, "Would you like to take the stairs or the elevator?" I was a oh yeah, because the guy made such a big deal about it. Yeah, that's what security does. Yeah, they were really antsy. The security guy standing by the door. Well, the, yeah, like, some call them antsy, some call them just secure, vigilant. Yeah, vigilant. I was just hanging out in the chairs downstairs in the lobby. Mm-hmm. And they're looking around like, I'm looking for a guy named Terry. Is there a guy named Terry? And I'm Here. like, I'm over on my phone. I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? How did you they, doing? Did they jump you and like pat pat well, you down? He sized me up. And yeah. I think he, in his mind, he goes, oh, I can take him. No problem. I, I can take this guy. <laughs> Go for his knees. <laughs> take him out of the knees. Hey, tomorrow, by the way, I also get to speak uh, to a, a group of um, Air Force cadets. Is that what oh. they call them? Air Force cadets? Do some no, Air, Air Force, Force versus Navy jokes. Those are good ones. I've you heard always too. go to the jokes that well, you are gotta, offensive. You always want to lead with a joke. Well, maybe this is why I'm doing the speaking and you're not. Because <laughs> you can't. Anyway. It's not offensive. It's just everyone knows. Uh, you well, know, so they, well, could do an anti-Navy joke. Pro-Air Force joke. But yeah, it's why, why the Air Force is better than yeah. whatever yeah. 
No, that's a great idea. military you want to toss in there. Have you, you like the Coast Guard. Everyone likes to rag on the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever have you noticed how quiet it is without Jeff here? Yeah, it's great. It's a me, Alex. Alex is a feeling in for a Jeffrey. It's a me. <laughs> um, Jeff's out of town, finally doing this brother's uh, It's not really retreat. brother's because isn't his like mom and sister? Well, it's his mom and brother's retreat. Sister-in-law is going to be there too? Mom, brother's, one sister-in-law yeah, retreat. It's kind of been diminished in its- No, it hasn't. That's the beauty of brothers families because they're forever. Because they horn in on the action? Is that what it is? I want to yeah. go too. But he's no. there. He's going to go to a Dodger game, I think, tonight. Yeah. He's going to move somebody? Yeah. Someone's going to make him lift things because he's there? Yeah, but he he's wants- like, I'm to, here to eat a hot dog. But Leave he wants alone. to lift That's things. a raw deal. Yeah, moving. It it's, <laughs> you act like he doesn't want to do it, but he wants to. No, he doesn't. He's a very kind guy like that. Well, he won't say no, but he yeah. wants to watch a baseball game. Yeah. Well, he will. He'll watch that. And and if they get eliminated, which they won't, but if they do, then he, we can stop talking about baseball. Yeah, but we'll always be talking about nachos because that's... Well, that's fun. I think more people like nachos than baseball. Which do you think he's really more interested in, the Dodger game or the nachos that he, he brings He talks up? about the food all the time. I, I don't think he really pays attention to It's because he's game. on a diet. Is that what it is? Yeah. I like nachos better. So yeah. If you're not if you're not on nachos alert with him, <laughs> then you're not having a good day. Yeah. I wish he'd get off the diet though, now that he's gone. Let's just bring that out because mm. I don't want to talk about nachos anymore. Or food. Yeah. It's not really the hour to talk of food. No, it's not. It is uh it, it, but it's this is kind of this is Friday. This is the mm. day that we get ready for Saturday. That's not the way the song goes. But yeah, you're right. Many people would say this is the kind of the laziest day on the show. Friday? Mm-hmm. No. It's kind that's of a lazy day. Yeah, yeah. That's why that lazy. They called Just me. Kind of mailing it in like, for the weekend. Who, who could fill in for, for Jeff Simpson? <laughs> I know. Let's get someone that's really lazy. <laughs> Alex? That's right. No, he's not. Alex is a workaholic. Um, so we got a great show today. We're going to be talking about... Why the big comp- or the why the big companies? Why why is it that they don't update their systems? Like right, so right. I update my phone regularly. Your computer, we were my talking computer, about that yesterday. I just took it down and had it updated. It was very fast, very easy. But why on earth would uh, you know Equifax, mm-hmm. a really huge organization with millions and millions of uh, pieces of data, private, personal information, why aren't they updating theirs? It seems like they have the resources. They would, you'd think they'd have the personnel, the money to do it. And the stories that came out, where there was a, a specific piece of computer equipment, yeah. there was an update, and they went, eh, and they waited a couple months, and someone got in and got the information. And why, for example, would the IRS still be running on you know 1990 technology or 1980 technology? Right. We're going to get into that. And by the way, the IRS... Expert went and contracted with Equifax oh boy. to look into uh, like uh, fraud when it comes to your personal identity. That, really? That, that happened after the Equifax breach. Oh, wow. So they announced that all these hey. social security numbers and yeah. stuff's out there, and the IRS went, hey, let's sign a contract with you. We've been, we just signed a contract with Equifax to That's figure great. out how to protect information. <laughs> that you know, describes a lot. It's almost like the perfect storm. It's like five years of drought. Mm. And then uh, an electrical fire from a pole no, in California. That's alleged. That's not been proven. Okay. Just talked to PG&E. They said that's too early to make that sort of accusation. But we did have eight Transformers blowing and, and up in that area. now we have explosive vegetation. Oh, crazy stuff. In fact, and really one of the deadliest uh, 
disasters. I, th- I think they're saying natural disasters. Not is it? I guess it's. Not, I don't know what it is. I don't know what we'd call it. Fires or natural disasters. And, well, but if they're man made struck, yes, yeah. Man-made what if they're PG and E struck? It's more. Your utility, utility, yeah, utility, yeah, yeah, utility disaster. Yeah. Uh, so let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention? So uh, at least thirty-one people confirmed dead late Thursday in the rash of wildfires tearing through Northern California, making the inferno the deadliest in state history. Mm. Authorities have warned of uh, entire neighborhoods wiped out after more than a dozen fires erupted Sunday night. At least two thousand eight hundred homes destroyed in Santa Rosa alone. Officials said they discovered more bodies Thursday as search crews scoured devastated areas. Um, as of Thursday evening, about 400 people remain missing. It could take months for all the bodies to be identified, the officials said, and unrealistic to think the death toll will not continue to climb. Forecasters continue to warn of the dangerous conditions will get worse at no end in sight this weekend for high wind fueling the blazes. 50-mile-per-hour winds expected tonight. Holy cow. So they're they're prepping fire lines so they can try to try to contain them as much as possible but 50 mile an hour winds exploding trees it's there's going to be they're, more it's jumping highways Wildfires are, crazy. are scary you, you, i mean you can't even like prepare for those no. you can't outrun it right no it just so. overtakes you in other news the next step in president donald trump's plan to neutralize the affordable care act without assistance from congress entails cutting off subsidy payments to insurers that sell coverage under the Landmark legislation, according to Politico, ending the payments worth roughly $7 billion this year alone would likely spike out-of-pocket costs incurred by low-income Americans who obtain their health care coverage through the Obamacare exchanges. Reports of Trump's plan to pull the plug on the subsidies comes the same day as signing of an executive order allowing the creation of a newly formed health association that offers less health coverage overall. Okay. So, so he, everyone was mad at President Obama. Yeah. For signing all these orders, yep, and for doing the Affordable Health Care Act, unilaterally sidestepping yes, Congress, right? That's kind of the, the the argument. And because then they couldn't get legislation through through the GOP mm-hmm. led Congress. Now the president's going to now, I guess, unilaterally defund. Well, he can't Obamacare. He can't get it through the GOP led Congress either. No, that's the point, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So he's now going to, I guess, use President Obama's horrible techniques. Yes, you're wrong. Well, there okay. you go. Yeah, he would have. <laughs> I a, was just trying to. By clarify. the way, he went to sign the. Uh, he announced the executive order, and then went to walk out of the room. And Mike Pence had to run over and grab him and say, "Hey, you have to sign it." And he goes, "Oh yeah," and then ran back and sat down to sign it. It's, a, oh, yeah. it's uh, an interesting piece of video. Okay, classic. Yeah. He just <laughs> walks out of the room. I'm like, dude, hey, we're not hey, done yet. Come back here, you. Uh, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, as we talked about on Thursday, made a rare appearance in the briefing room taking questions from reporters on a host of subjects. Kelly was asked in particular whether President Trump's Twitter outbursts make his job more difficult. Uh, he said, no, it doesn't. He goes, the job of Chief of Staff is to staff the president, give him the best advice, or go get the best advice I can give him, help him consume advice, help him work through the decision-making process in an informed way. That's my job. Yeah, Twitter doesn't make that more difficult, and everyone went right. And he also said the the pictures of him like staring at the floor, yeah. looking kind of downturned, or putting like, his head yeah. in his hands. Sad. Don't read into those. Don't at read all. into that. That's just him thinking. Yeah, it's not what you think. It's a, it's a dre- it's an old general technique <laughs> that they learn in general school. It's just like well, it's always associated with something where kind of the general feel is like like when yeah. he he called when he said he was gonna. If push comes to shove, we may have to just completely annihilate North Korea. Yeah. Right? And As then, you do. And then you look over and there's John Kelly with his head in his hands. 
Yeah, but see, that's just body language. But right. Yeah, and but it, body it, language it, isn't always accurate. Right. That's what he was trying to say. And people are like, what? Come on. You're having. <laughs> Maybe you're, he's having trouble at home. Maybe he's trying to think, how do I, you know, spin us out of this one? Maybe his maybe his wife at home threatened a nuclear disaster. There you go. Could Who be. knows? You never know. You never know. And finally, the Associated Press has obtained a recording of what some U.S. embassy workers heard in Havana in a series of unnerving incidents later deemed to be deliberate attacks. Ooh. The recording, released Thursday by the AP, is the first disseminated publicly of the many taken in cube of mysterious sounds that led, that led investigators to initially suspect a sonic weapon. The recordings themselves are not believed to be dangerous to those who listen. Sound experts and physicians say they know of no sound that can cause physical damage when played for short durations at normal levels through standard equipment like a cell phone, a computer, a TV speaker, or a radio speaker, right? So what device produced the original sound? It remains unknown. Americans affected in Havana reported the sounds hit them at extreme volumes. They, they ended up with hearing uh, loss and sort of yeah. brain damage. Here's the sound. Did your brain melt? Are you okay? No, it just reminded me of a Texas night. <laughs> yeah, sounds like cicadas, yeah, or, cicadas or crickets out. or something. Yeah. Like, and that's the, it kind of sounds like crickets, but played it at extreme volume. They either heard this or if it's at another frequency kind of higher than we can actually hear, then it's it's bombarding you, but you can't hear it. But you got yeah. a headache. But like – but couldn't it be that they do have a weapon that's doing that, right? But this is – and then it just makes televisions, cell phones make weird sounds. So this has nothing to do with other devices. There's some guy sitting in a van well, with a parabolic. They heard it. They're, they're saying, yeah, they heard it unfiltered yeah. at the yeah. embassy. We're hearing it through here and that right. whole thing is because people would freak out thinking like you're playing a sound that's going to hurt me. But that's not the case with what it's we not, did. But, the sound can't hurt you unless you're in that area, right? Right. So – but, oh, and unless you've got, like, but, Russian spies in Havana. The, yeah. Then the question is, is it Cuba? But why would Cuba do that? They want to keep that relationship. We're friends with Cuba. Well, we were. And so I'm not, so sure, what the, weeks I'm not sure what the current situation it's is. It's a lot Cuba. less cool than exploding cigars. We need to bring those back. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. So who did this? What, what's happening? Was it even a sonic weapon? Or is there some other situation going on? They're not sure. Is there such thing as sonic weapons? Or was that just a really bad feedback from now, some somebody's would say, amp? Some would say Celine Dion might be a sonic weapon. No. Yeah. Have you heard the Titanic song? Oh, it's bad. No, it's beautiful. Oh, it hurts. My eardrums Celine will Dion, go on. She's incredible. I mean, I was thinking you were going to play some music, like some... No, it just sounds like crickets. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think it's an effective weapon? Do you think... Oh, yeah. I think it worked. Now I, people like have brain damage. I, I was I played it for my parents last night. They couldn't hear it. Ah, oh, the blessings of aging. Now, granted, my dad's got he's kind of hard of hearing a little bit, but even even when I put it like right next to his good ear, he just kind of heard <laughs> the good ear, the, the kind of some static. Well, and I think it's you know the higher pitches sometimes. Yeah, I, I thought it was a couple years ago. I was talking with Alex before the show. A couple years ago, there was a. Um, what was it? It was like a, a text alert sound that kids were putting on their phones uh-huh. so that they, they could like cheat in class, send each other answers. And the alert was just sort of a little blip of noise, but only like teenagers could hear it. Oh, really? So their teachers wouldn't be aware of the sound. I bet it was something like, dude. Hey, dude. No, it was just like, hey, a, dude. It was a beep. 
And so there was this – it was one of these things on the internet where like, you know, like the color of the dress. Some people oh, see yeah. this. Well, some people could hear it. Other people couldn't. But really, I guess teens were more able to hear it? Their ears were younger, less damaged by the world, I guess. Yeah. Nimble. Head, nimble. There nimble you go. Nimble ears. I could hear it. And I was in my mid-20s. Well, what does that say about you? I have young ears. Immature. No. I haven't damaged my hearing. Huh? What? Huh? <laughs> That joke never gets old. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, maybe it's Kim Jong-un. Now, could did be. you hear the latest on him? What's he doing? He's trying to get information on Trump. Okay. That's not hard. Just look at his Twitter. Yeah, it's pretty much TV, right there. The no, 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 like, like kind of dossier information. Well, they have one of those. He, he, he wants more. Ro- Robert Mueller's investigating yeah, that blah, blah, blah. one. Really? That's not That's the one. That's a different one? Okay. But he wants data, like right. So now it's like, okay, anybody in the world that has data on Donald Donald Trump. But I'm thinking, wouldn't that data kind of be out? What does he want? Dirt, I bet. There's dirt. like 15 books. Pick one. Watch Entertainment Tonight. There you go. No, like real dirt. <laughs> not like previous, not previously published dirt. Oh, the stuff that's already out that everyone's already dismissed. Yeah. Oh, okay. That stuff. He wants the photos of Trump playing tennis. Ooh. Have you seen those? No. Yeah. Someone did a. Uh, Does he play tennis too? No, he used to. Until the pictures were taken. I saw yeah. the best Halloween costume. Someone dressed up as Trump playing tennis. It is frightening. Yeah. Is he wearing. Does his, he have. His tennis whites can barely contain him, is basically how I think Stephen Colbert <laughs> called it. <laughs> wow, that's a vivid. It's image. really unflattering, yes. It makes you wonder. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen Donald's legs. Mm. Bare legs. Look up the picture. I'm good. It's in there. It is Friday the 13th. Yeah. You want to get a good scare. Oh, it'd be hard to be president. It would. Lots because of... you can't, like, you go to the beach, everyone wants a picture of you without your shirt on. That's it. You go play tennis, everyone wants to check your legs out. And then everyone's going to make a comment. Mm-hmm. Man, if you had body image issues, or like, let's say you ha- you felt insecure about your hairline, hypothetically. Right. <laughs> it'd be really hard to be a president. It would. You're on TV constantly. Oh. I was telling you yesterday, uh, there's there's stories about how President Trump stages the photos in the White House yeah. to, to have uh, his good side. minimize his double chin, to make yeah. sure there's certain sides of his head that aren't, Squint more. aren't photographed. He squints more because he, he thinks he looks more powerful if he's kind of squinting. That's oh, is co- that what, oh, that's what that the is. the cover of his book, he's yeah. like squint. Yeah, he, like, he thinks that's more intimidating. I thought, well, I just thought he had bad eyesight. Well, there's probably that too. My wife does the same thing, though. She squints? In every picture, oh. my wife looks beautiful. Because she knows where the camera yeah, is. Yeah, and I look like, yeah. shoot. Like Trump playing tennis. <laughs> but she always, I don't know what it is, she always seems to be on the right side. She gets yeah. her ideal side. Her ideal side, ironically, is the opposite of my ideal. It's on the same side as my good side. Oh, wow. So if we're going to get her good side, we don't get mine. Yeah. You have to stand back to back. Yeah. But, I mean, you're the husband. You need to take the hit. Oh, I take it. Because, I mean, you look at it. Any picture, you look better standing next to her, so make her look. Every picture, people say, oh, she looks so gorgeous. Oh, and there's Matt. They they don't say, you guys look great. Right. It's she looks gorgeous. Do you ever point? I'm like, what what about me? I've heard if you you feel like you're not as featured in the photograph, maybe you can just point at the camera. I do that. Hey. (laughs) Yeah, do that. Um, Yeah, in fact, that very picture where I was pointing to the camera was a total joke. And that's the one they used. Nice. I was just joking. Like, hey, this is my speaker pose. Okay. And they took it and they're like, yeah, let's use that one. And you're like, whoa. Oh, well. Boy. What are you going to do? Well, I guess I'll do more just, pictures next just week. Just stand next to your wife. 
Unbelievable. You always look better. <sighs> it's hard to be the ugly one. But Preach. At, at least you know. Yeah. There's those situations where maybe the person isn't quite aware of what their status is yeah. in a relationship. And by the way, if you don't know if you're the ugly one, yeah. you are. That's true. You are the ugly it's one. It's sad but true. You, I mean, you, you should know. And it's obvious. And it, your friends and your neighbors won't tell you, yeah, you're not the pretty one in the couple. So if, if in those pictures people aren't talking about how great you look, sorry, you're the ugly one. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Hey, up next we're going to be talking about why big companies don't keep their computer systems up to date. What is their deal and why do they keep losing our data Interesting insight straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The Equifax hack exposed 143 million people's personal data to unknown cyber criminals starting in March, and it wasn't made public until mid-September. Computer science professor Doug Schmidt uh, from Vanderbilt University uh, believes that this attack was entirely avoidable because Equifax, like many other big companies, was using out-of-date software that made them even more vulnerable. And so we wanted to talk to him about why big companies don't keep their computers up to date. The rest of us try to, right? We try to. And when we don't, we pay a private personal price. But why don't the big companies? Uh, Douglas C. Schmidt, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Mark. What do you, what do you, oh, let me ask you something real fast on this because, Doug, you sit there, um, I mean, you're in the, you're in the throes of this, right? You're deep into computer science and electrical engineering. And um, even just a 10, uh, about five days ago, probably, I had to update my phone and it took me a few hours to fix everything the way I wanted it after uh, some other problems came up. But why are the big companies not doing it? Well, obviously, when, when you or I or even sometimes our, our institutions uh, update things, we typically worry about a handful of devices. We worry about our smartphones. We worry about our laptops. And we have a pretty good handle on what needs to be updated. So we might get a message from Microsoft or Apple saying, please install these patches or these patches are being installed for you. And it's pretty localized and it's pretty clear what we need to do. When you're a company, especially a company that's very much reliant on software for your business, you may have hundreds or thousands or millions of packages and applications and lines of code that you have to keep track of. And oftentimes these organizations don't really even know the inventory of what they're dealing with because oftentimes, for example, as was the case with Equifax, they outsource a lot of the development off-site or offshore. Mm. So when a problem occurs, they may not even have the source code. They may not even have the experts on site to know how to address and detect and fix these problems. Is that is that just kind of normal method of operation? Is that how most companies are working nowadays, is trying to outsource that? Well, sadly, many companies tend to think of software as the cost of doing business. So mm-hmm. as a result, they treat it as a back office function whose costs are meant to be contained and managed by middle-level managers and lower-level managers, as opposed to a strategic asset that's absolutely crucial to their bottom line and therefore should be paid attention to by the highest levels of the company. So yes, it's a, it's a very, very common problem. It's a problem, especially in, in organizations that, are not, that do not view themselves as software or IT 
centric or strategically uh, positioned companies to view the importance of this technology. So as a result, they, they give it short shrift. They, people who are involved in security and, and the chief information officers often don't even have a direct reporting line to the CEO. Mm. So when these kinds of problems occur, as, as you discover when you listen to the testimony by the Equifax former CEO from a week or two ago in Congress, he didn't even know about this problem till much, much after it became a crisis and therefore was not in a good position to dedicate the resources to address it adequately. Holy cow, that's that's a that's a big deal, right? The CEO and by the way, the CEO and um the chief security officer and one other person, COO maybe, uh were all were all fired, I guess, uh, terminated from Equifax. But an interesting point you brought up in your article in the conversation is that this the chief security officer didn't even have uh computer experience. That's right. This is a this is a very serious problem. As you can expect, there's a lot of demand for people with these skills these days, and well-run companies are, are clamoring to get those folks. So it's often hard to find good people, especially if you're not willing to pay or reward or incentivize people to join the company. And uh, a lot of places, and I think Equifax probably falls into this category, really are looking at the cost containment model, trying to keep the costs low. And so they, they scrimp on these issues thinking it's not going to bite them until, of course, it's a huge disaster. And and one of the really sad things about this case uh, with Equifax is we have exposed people, uh, especially younger people, who are going to have to spend the rest of their lives living in the shadow of fear that bad folks, bad actors, are going to exploit their personal information. Uh, Those of us who are later in our lives, and we maybe aren't trying to get loans for houses or cars, we can put credit freezes, we can do things to protect ourselves. But younger folks who have a whole life ahead of themselves are going to have to live for a very long time with the consequences of the the sloppiness on the part of Equifax. Mm. It is a big and 143 million. Um plus, you know, plus uh those are the ones I guess that we know that we admit but there were other kind of dangerous things that were being done um weren't they also sending people to different sites to to even fish for more information? Well, the sad part here is that they're, because they were so unprepared to handle this problem, their response to the problem first was to sort of try to sweep it under the rug. And then when they finally owned up to the problem, they uh, actually were directing people to a phishing site oh. as the remedy for the problem. So they, they were not prepared for it in the first place. When the problem happened, they didn't have proper responsiveness, and they simply confused the issue, and they tried to shift the burden uh, the legal burden to the consumer who was the person who was affected by the breach by saying if, if you agreed to their security monitoring system, your credit monitoring system, you would give up any right to future litigation. And there was a huge outcry by many people. So they changed those terms and conditions on their site. But even after that point, it was still not clear uh, for quite a long time that the remedy wasn't in fact putting you in more danger because it would be asking for a lot of extra personal information. It wasn't clear that that site was related to Equifax. And they own, their own tweets to indicate how to deal with this problem were directing consumers to a phishing site. Oh, so brother. Bad, bad news across the board. Yeah. And um, so in an effort, I guess, to save money, they, you know, they make these decisions. And then I guess they, like a lot of us, we just go pull something off the shelf or just download the most popular app. Um, but in large organizations, Fortune 100 companies, I guess the the ideal would then be that they're creating their own software platform, but I guess a lot of them are still just using open source software. Is that not a good idea? Well, the issue here isn't really with open source versus non-open source. There there are 
defects and bugs and vulnerabilities in almost every piece of software. The real question is, uh, knowing that there will be defects, what is your process, what are your techniques and your, your people, organizational approaches and skills and so on, to address these issues when they inevitably arise? And so whether the software is open or not, it simply means you've got to be prepared, you have to have an inventory, you have to be able to prioritize the, the attacks, you have to keep your patches up to date. And, and by the way, I don't want to give the impression of throwing the, the IT people under the bus here. This is a very hard technical problem. Oh, I bet. And trying to keep all the dependencies straight is really complicated, but that underscores why it's even more important to have a good training process in place, have good staff, give the right emphasis to this, and make sure that you don't just uh, hide your head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend like the problem won't happen to your organization, because it's going to happen. It's, it's almost inevitable these days. Well, and especially with an organization like Equifax that's transacting, I'm sure, most of their stuff over the Internet. That's right. And I think a lot of these systems, if you think about Equifax, that company's been around for a very long time. And undoubtedly, a lot of the processes and procedures they have had in place over the years began well before they were connected to the Internet. And a lot of these things used to be done probably through fax or, or through mail, if mm. you go back long enough. And so they really weren't aware of all the vulnerabilities that were being unleashed by putting their software on the web. And so that's part of it. And the other part, of course, is that it appears from watching various videos by the CEO and others, a former CEO, that they were really proud of the fact that they were outsourcing a lot of their development to, to other places in the world. And so as a result, they didn't have the people in-house to even know that they were vulnerable. They, oh, they apparently wow. did some scans of their software to try to see if they had these problems, couldn't find anything. And, of course, the reason they couldn't find it was they probably didn't even have that software on site. It had been developed uh, overseas. <laughs> so you couldn't even know. You, they can't know. That's right. That's right. And so they're blind. And, and that's, of course, once again, a sign of an organization that doesn't really understand the strategic value of the software assets that they have. And, of course, the, the, we're going to live with this for a long time. Uh, and one of the things that's most frustrating to people, people like you and I, is the fact that we often didn't even know they had this information. Most people were not even aware that all this information was being collected and stored in a central place, making it so vulnerable to attack. Mm. Does and I, I guess this is is this uh, endemic of other and, and and do you see this in other companies? Do you see this? Is this a bigger problem than just the Equifax problem? Absolutely, I would say pretty much every organization these days, and this goes for big and small companies. It goes for individuals like you and me. Uh, we're all incredibly vulnerable. Oftentimes, honestly, the smaller companies are even more vulnerable because they often lack the IT staff and expertise to put the safeguards in place. Equifax was a big company that lacked those things, but, but smaller companies are often even more at risk. Um, and, but this isn't limited just to things like credit scores. National security assets, things like the, the plans for America's uh, stealth fighters, um, all kinds of things are, are chronically being hacked. And, and of course, if you just watch the news over a period of time, you see things like people attacking movie studios, people attacking defense contractors. Basically, everything is being hacked. People attacking political uh, campaigns. Mm. So this is a really, really big problem. And we're only beginning to understand the magnitude of the dependencies we've got ourselves in with our reliance on software. We have to be able to take it seriously. Well, it's almost like you have to have a team inside of your company that's, I guess, and you call them DevOps, where they're developing the software and the security and, and the firewalls and support, but they're also... I guess they're making they're they're handling the operation of it and 
and they're constantly testing, constantly looking for the flaws. Is that how this goes? Is that how is that the ideal work? That's right. And, and of course, even that is tricky. I'm sure you've experienced situations where you've installed some new patches that were pushed to your machines by, by Microsoft or Apple, and, and they do their best, and they've got some of the best and brightest technical people in the world, but even they get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. So occasionally you'll, you'll get a patch, and then in the next hour or two, you'll get a frantic note saying, please install this new patch. We got it wrong. <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to make it sound like uh, this is an easy problem, and, and Equifax just should have you know, paid a little bit more attention to cyber hygiene, you're sort of washing your cyber hands to keep germs away. But because it's such a tricky issue, you've got to have staff, as you say, on site pretty much 24-7, keeping track of the attacks, figuring out the responses, putting out new fixes, being prepared to change those fixes if they go awry, which they sometimes do. And, and it's, so it's just a never-ending cycle and, and very expensive and very stressful, as you can imagine, for the people who work in that industry. It's not an easy thing to do. Well, and then I, I can see Equifax goes up to Congress and they start sharing a lot of their uh, problems or are asked about their problems from probably a lot of people that have no clue what the real issues are. As far I mean, this is so complicated. I don't know how anybody could really understand it. So is there a way to create laws and oversight that would that would make companies safer to protect them from themselves? Well, absolutely. Good. A fantastic question. That's a tricky issue. And, and obviously, to make good laws, you have to have people who, who know what the issues are in order to help craft that legislation. And, and there are folks who, who do have some of that insight, but it's, it's not something that's universal in the government or in industry for that matter. One thing that Congress could probably do fairly easily is make it easier for folks like you and me to protect ourselves from what has happened. So right now, if you want to put a credit freeze, which is a very good idea, put a credit freeze on your, your credit uh, in, the, in these various places like um, TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax, you actually have to do a lot of extra work. You have to call. You have to pay money. Mm. You have to pay a fee to protect your own credit, which seems a little That's bit crazy. Strange. Yeah. And it would be very straightforward, I think, to since, – since these companies are making money off of our personal information, it only seems fair that there should be legislation in place to ensure that we don't have to pay to add insult to injury to protect ourselves from their negligence. Mm-hmm. And, it's like a do not call kind of, list almost, right? Like, but that was so complicated to get on the do yeah. not call list. But if wouldn't that be great if I could just go to a website and put a credit freeze until I needed credit again? I think that's what we really need to be moving towards, Mark. You're absolutely right. And that probably isn't that hard to do. It'll cost some people a little money that they would otherwise expect to charge in fees, but it's a small price to pay for the enormous amount of inconvenience that these companies have, have put on us as the consumers and citizens of the country. And I think it should be their responsibility to make it right in some sense. What what suggestions do you have for just the average citizen then um, to make sure that they're not as vulnerable as these organizations remain vulnerable? Great question. So there's obviously a technical side, which is if you use computing, which almost everybody does these days, make sure that you keep it up to date with, with patches and fixes that are pushed from legitimate providers, again, Microsoft's or Apple's or the Google's who, who push this stuff to your, your phone or to your computer. That's crucial from a technical point of view. It's also a good idea to to get antivirus software, but you have to be careful because there are scams yeah. out there as well you have to be aware of. From an economic point of view, the key thing to do to protect yourself is to, again, this credit freeze is, is very important. It's, it's not that hard to do. It's probably going to cost you 20 bucks maybe to do it. 
but it prevents people from opening credit in your name, for example, opening a, a credit card in your name and thereby polluting your credit uh, integrity and then making it very difficult to identity theft for you to be able to have effective use of credit in the future. And uh, that's a very important thing to do. It's, it's inconvenient right now, but it's something that's important. And of course, also uh, monitoring the credit agencies reports to see if there's strange things that have happened. And of course, monitoring your, your credit card bills. And if anything goes awry, making sure you, you contact the appropriate authorities or the, the banks or the credit cards or whatnot in order to get those issues resolved. And almost all the time, if you do it quickly and you do it well, you'll get your money back. It's harder to get your identity back, but you can get your money back often if it's theft through credit cards and other, other yeah. types of credit. Because it's a hassle. It's just such a hassle. It seems like, and do you, do you see it going forward in the future, um, Douglas, this idea of, like I, like, I can give a fingerprint to validate who I really am in a law, in a, in a face-to-face encounter or whatever. And um, is there any way to truly, do you see going forward in the future, have a clear, authentic fingerprint digitally? So they know it's me, and if it's not me, no one can do it. Right. We're, we're getting better at this. There's, there's things you, you may have heard of, things like uh, two-level, uh, two-factor authentication, yeah. where you give a password, and then you have to maybe have a special code that comes to your cell phone number, or maybe you do a, a, a fingerprint scan, or as becoming popular with newer smartphones, you can do a 3D facial scan. So we're getting better, but we're unlikely to ever get that completely uh, uh, fail-safe or, or idiot-proof because the people who are the, the bad guys, the bad actors out there, get very clever as well. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an arms race. People try to find ways to defend themselves, and people find more clever ways to attack them. But almost always when these problems occur, it's because of people not following through on the practices and procedures that are recommended. And Equifax is a great example of that. They just didn't have the right procedures and processes in place to handle this. It was partly technical, but it was also partly, you know, about culture and management and people and following the right process. So that, of course, as you know, is, is often the hardest thing to do, get people to change their, their practices, not putting their password on a sticky note, you know, <laughs> or not calling it the name of their youngest child. Yeah. Those are the things that are hard to do. <laughs> oh, it's so true, Doug. Well, Doug, we appreciate you. It's great insight for all of us. And um, I, I really feel like we can't get enough um, warning. We need more and more warnings because for some reason – We're not taking it. Uh, Douglas C. Schmidt is his name. And again, um, electrical engineering and computer science professor at Vanderbilt University and uh, wrote a wonderful article. Why don't big companies keep their computer systems up to date? Well, it sounds like most of them aren't. And part of it is simply having the team, having the insight, the understanding that uh, this is a constant threat. And you have to have the team on site to help you get through that. We'll continue trying to make your life better right here on the Matt Townsend Show. friends to the Matt Townsend show. You know, there's just something about bureaucracy that, uh, that, you know, in large companies would tell you, you're probably not going to have the computer, the, the toughest, tightest systems in your computer. And then, uh, an interesting point that uh, the IRS had just signed a contract with Equifax 
Yeah. I mean, right after the breach, like about how to protect information. So is it like because they lost it all, they have more experience on how to? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> hey, you really, you lost more information well, than any lot, other organization. Can uh, you tell us how you did that? Like here in the here in our building at BYU Broadcasting, when there was an update for computer software, um, at our at our desks we have what Windows computers, and you have a an Apple that yeah. they they they've assigned you, and and before there's an update, they want to test. And make sure that our software we use here in the building isn't going to be compromised or not work the same way with the new update. So it's not immediate that we get these updates yeah. or patches or things, but eventually they're they're done probably within a couple of weeks. And some companies they just they choose they have like some proprietary software, and they know it's going to break once you load a new right. software. So they they never someone update has it. to write code to bridge the the new with the old. That's why so many companies stayed with. Uh, what was it? Windows XP. Yeah. When it already had progressed to seven, and then eight, and then it was moving to ten, and they're still on XP. Hold because on, wasn't that when the millennium was coming, and everyone was like, "Everything's going to shut down because yeah. everyone's on XP." Yeah. Those are the days. Yeah. So I mean, it's it, it's a problem for companies, and as as the guest was talking about, having people within your company that do more than just send out updates. Yeah. Here's but actually, update. can build programs and look at how that works with what you're doing in house. Well, think think about so the chief security officer, they called him the chief security officer for Equifax, uh, you know, 10 years ago Mm -hmm. would have needed to be really good at making sure the phone lines were secure. Yeah. That faxes weren't being, you know, intercepted. Mm -hmm. Now think about it's all it's all digital. And so it is. And apparently the guy that was there was woefully under uh, qualified for the job he had. He was probably worked his way up through security. Yeah. Chief of security had, you know, was a regional director at Walmart security for building security and maintenance. Mm. I don't know. And now it'd be like putting the governor of Texas in in charge of the Department of Energy, something like that. Wow. I mean, that seems very specific. Yeah, kind of. Whenever I hear about this stuff, I just think about the movie Ghost and that slimy guy trying to wire money from his old computer. You know, we're talking about old <laughs> software and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's that's a good image. The slimy. The slimy guy. And the slimy guy. You know, Patrick Swayze just typing Sam over and over and over again. Yeah. The, That'd be a are, good attack. There are people, though, that can – that will – you can pay them and they're hackers and they'll do nothing but try to hack your business all day. We've had one on the show a couple times. And then they'll – They'll show you what the problem is. I know people that will then even go in and train your people not to have that problem again. Yeah. And I mean I get I get that you want your developers to be affordable. So I guess everyone wants to send them offshore to India or wherever to, hey, you guys do our development. Right. But it might be good to have, you know. Somebody in-house. Some pe- people in-house that are <laughs> able to write code immediately and recognize that you've just been hacked. Yeah. Um, Let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. When we come back, uh, we're going to show you that maybe bureaucracy might be creating some problems for nine states in airfare travel. Yeah. Domestic air travel. Just nine states. The others are fine. Just the nine you got to worry about. Straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be uh, safer in your lives. This is uh, what we do because we love you. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. You know, as we talk about, um, you know, making you more secure in your lives, 
you a lot of times think, hey, I'm just going to rely on the government because the government will be able to they'll, – they'll make me secure. Right. And they'll do so without complicating anything. Well. Ish. Yeah. You're wrong. So uh, talk to me about this new legislation. Only nine well, cities, nine states. It's not really legislation. It's a TSA sort of involves – they're involved okay, in yeah. this. It's not their problem. It's some other uh, rules that have been passed. Is there going to be a frisking? No. It says when traveling, it's best to plan ahead whenever you can. Yeah, That's, that's what, good that's advice. That's what Mama right said, right? It says, for example, you may have thought you don't need a passport because you're not traveling outside the United States. Right, right. Uh, but for residents of nine states, that will change at the beginning of 2018 for any commercial flight, whether international or domestic. You'll need a passport. Wow. Yeah. Really? As reported by Travel and Leisure, nine states will no longer allow travelers to board an airplane with just their state-issued driver's license as of January 22nd of 2018. To get past TSA security checkpoints, another form of identica- identification will be required, a passport, a permanent resident card, green card, or a military ID. I was about to ask, what if you're not a citizen, but if you have a green card, then... Yeah, you're in. So it's the the Real ID Act of 2005 states that state-issue IDs from these nine states do not meet the minimum security standards of the federal government. Oh, so so these states could pick up their standard. Yeah. Or their citizens have to bring a passport if they don't make a higher standard. Yeah, and these states haven't fixed their driver's licenses yet. What states are these? Kentucky. Come on, Kentucky! Maine. Okay. Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, uh, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Washington. Well, as you see, the biggest threats to America. (laughs) These nine states. So back in December, it was announced that the signage would start being placed around security checkpoints and airports to remind travelers of what's to come. With just a few months until the Real ID Act goes into full effect, it's time to start planning now and look to get uh, getting your passport if you're from one of those states. I'm going to bet there's going to be a lot of state governments hustling in the next few months. Some states have started working on offering federally approved issued IDs that would not require a passport for domestic air travel. You've got to check with your local government. Uh, These posters, they're all over the place apparently, and they'll be, uh, let's see, January 2018, the enforcement of those nine states will go into effect. And by 2020, even more people will end up needing a passport, as confirmed by the official TSA website. So apparently even more IDs will not qualify for whatever the standards are. Well, this is interesting because a lot those seem to be a lot of red states. We got some blue in there. We got Maine, Minnesota, Washington. But those are border states, so I think that's their reason. So there's, oh, but yeah. there's three, but so five are. Yeah, you got Missouri, Montana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Kentucky. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting because we always hear about let's build a wall, but don't we need to just shore up our own security here by having better IDs? So it says that it means if you're going to take a flight and you have a state issued ID from one of those nine states, you'll need a passport to go anywhere. That includes going to the next state, across the county, or country, oh. or even to Walt Disney World, or you know, one of those sort of attractions somewhere else. Well, then you'll the get country. Disney passports. Yeah, you get a Disney passport. That'll that'll you'll check. Be fine. Yeah, it's probably cheaper to get. It has to do with some of the security features on the ID yeah. and how easy they are to counterfeit. Boy, I hope people are hearing this because if you get to the airport and you don't have a passport, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's just—it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, it's going to be bad. People are going to walk in and be like, "I'm just going to like." Florida. What, what, okay. I mean, it's bad for those people from those states. It will be great uh, radio oh, yeah. for us. Oh, yeah. The chaos. There will be, be a lot of wonderful video and coming out. If of you're this. traveling around that time, maybe it'll streamline the lines a little bit. You'll be able to sail right through because yeah. you have the correct. I mean, if you want to fly out of Kentucky, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> be super, super easy.
Wow. And all they got to do is, pro- but that, I guess, retool, go get new computers. But they've go known get this new- for quite a while. Yeah. Over 10 years. The Real ID Act was 2005 when it was passed. So. Isn't that interesting? But it's kind of the same problem. I mean, it's technology and the ability to pay for it because it probably – these new security measures would take I would think different you machines. Would, you different... would hope there's steps being taken now, nee. but maybe not. <laughs> well, unless you like the surprise. There's always the surprise. Hey, happy Friday the 13th. See? Life is good. It's Friday the 13th. Tomorrow's Saturday the 14th. Get excited. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy uh, Friday the 13th, a day to celebrate if you are one who celebrates the dark arts. Happy uh, Friday 13th, by the way, also known um, as the, the, the fear of this number 13. Yes. It's known as triskaidekaphobia. Really? Triskaidekaphobia. Hmm. The fear of the number 13. Nothing to fear there. It's a number. I don't get this. It's just a number. It's just a number. But Friday the 13th, I'd, I'd be terrified. Oh, about. I get that. You That's like the ho- dark, yeah. Hotels don't have a 13th floor. Uh-huh. Just yeah, stuff like that. Right. Cats don't have the number 13 on them. Right. Anywhere. Especially black the cats. black cats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As they're walking under. Ele- you know, ladders. ladders I was going to yeah. say elevators. I don't walk too. under elevators either. By the way, Mama said don't ever walk under an elevator. That's good advice. Mama knows. We got a lot to cover today. Uh, we're going to be talking about how to take the mood elevator. Don't hmm. walk under it. You're, that is one that you don't want to walk under either. You, every one of us is on a mood elevator, right? Our, we, we can go start from really low moods to really high positive moods. And it's a very natural thing to go throughout the day. And we're kind of going up and down in mood, up and what down if, in mood. What if my mood elevator has two floors to go to? Yeah, then that would that would explain a lot. Okay. It's either like it's good, no problems, or anger. Those yeah. are like the two floors. It skips the 13th floor then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it skips like <laughs> 2 through 13. <laughs> and it goes right. So that means you maybe you just need a bit a better repertoire. You oh, just wow. need a wider range. Okay. Of mood. Is this a learned behavior? Uh-huh. Learn to be happy. So our guest today is going to be talking about the fact that all you have to do is start paying attention to the mood. And then what if we could just teach you to push a button? Hmm. Boink. Oh, I have a button. And not that button. Oh. And then get to <laughs> the, the higher mood, the healthier, happier Oh, mood. the healthy one. So the highest mood would be a mood of gratitude. And when you're at that higher mood, your thoughts are different. But getting all that emotion out, say with anger, really kind of de-stresses. Well, it, it it de-stresses you. Yeah, yeah, I feel better. Afterwards. But everyone around you just gets more stressed. I don't know if you've noticed that. Well, Have you ever noticed, like, I can tell your mood by just how the producers scurry. Is that what it is? Yeah. They, like, clear a path. When you walk, walk through, through yeah. and all the producers are like, wee, 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 like little mice running when he away. you saying serenity now over oh, and over again, he right. knows. Yeah, Stay yeah. Away. Okay. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> totally. By the way, that's the voice of Alex who's filling in for uh, Jeff because Jeff is – Jeff's away on family location. Family location. I don't know. He's away on location somewhere. He's on a baseball trip. 
He's on a baseball trip with his brother, his sister-in-law, and his mother. We're supposed father. to be just brothers weekend, but... But but you want to involve everyone. No, you don't. He explained it. No, you're such, you're so negative about it. The other him. sort of we want to come to was well, kind of the Would you not want to go to a Dodger went. game? No. Well, I mean, if it's a <laughs> brother's weekend, right? Yeah. I don't think he was trying to keep that element of it a secret. So if my sisters all went to Broadway in New York and just wanted to go see some shows, yeah. I shouldn't inject myself? Do they call it Sister's Weekend? Yeah. Well, if they did, then yes, stay out of it. They actually don't call it Sister's Weekend. They just call it the Anti-Man Weekend Party. No Matt Weekend. Yeah. Then you're like, wait a second. I'm getting a, a, a message here. You're trying to give me some sort of indicator. Now I feel bad because I, I wonder why they never invited me hmm. on those trips. Well, well, and honestly, I'm good with it. Yeah, that's probably why they knew who for you a were. second there. I thought I should. No, I'm good. Baseball people are a different breed. I don't know, and he and I don't even know if Jeff, Jeff says he's a baseball like fanatic. It's more the food. It's more nachos. Yeah, he gets really excited when I bring up ballpark food. I hope he gets his fill of nachos because I'm not wanting to go there anymore. To talk about nachos, mm-hmm. okay. The guy loves his nachos. And he's obviously not getting enough. And apparently at Dodger Stadium, the good nachos you have to walk quite a distance for. Yeah, you lose weight getting there. And so, yeah, you, there's some exercise involved. You don't get the cheap nachos. Oh. No, cheap nachos. You have to get the good nachos, the gourmet nachos. They're over to – but they're by the sushi bar. They squeeze it out of a gourmet <laughs> box. Because they have those there too. <laughs> I love baseball sushi. Nothing goes with baseball more than well, sushi. It's, it's Throw Los it in Angeles. the microwave. It's you know. Los Angeles, so of course they have a sushi, but they have sushi everywhere. Oh, now. I love sushi though, but I just so I don't know, know that I could imagine it at a baseball park. Yeah, well, I, I mean maybe I, Mariners. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it uh, any time at all, really. But yeah. that's just me. That's a good point. <laughs> hey, we got a lot of other stuff we're going to be talking about before we get to the headlines. We, we'll talk about uh, what happens when your neighbor in your really nice neighborhood brings home a, a tank. An army tank. Thank you very much. No? Yeah, you sent him a note. Tanks, tanks for the ride, but no tanks. <laughs> yeah, so people not happy with the tanks. Not happy with that. Plus, uh, boy, if you're going to fall out of an eight-story building, oh wow. you sure would like something nice to land on. Yeah, not in this case. Not in this case. A porta potty mm. We'll get to that story straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Today, President Trump... Will largely wash his hands of the uh, nuclear deal reached with Iran, Russia, China, and three European countries, according to a summary released by the White House late Thursday. Trump has long rallied against the deal, or railed against the deal, grudgingly certifying Iran's uh, compliance two times, and by announcing he is either certifying it again or not trying to amend it for now, he will leave leave it up to Congress whether to impose deal-wrecking sanctions. Trump is encouraging Congress to establish trigger points for reintroducing sanctions, but it's unclear if Congress will muster agreement to do anything. This is the the Iran deal that he doesn't like. His uh, staff has told him everyone's in compliance, but Trump still doesn't like the deal. They they seem to all be in compliance. Yeah, they're doing what they said they would do. And uh, the problem with this is the United States says, yes, we're involved. This is what we're doing. Now it looks like we're going back on our word. Yeah. Is some of the critique I've heard. So I, well, sure. What are you and, do? you know, again, the people that voted him in, they didn't like the deal. Great. So they're going to go change the deal. So. 
What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly spontaneously told the press that I'm not quitting today during a rare press conference at the White House Thursday. Although I read it all the time, pretty consistently, I'm not quitting today, Kelly said. I don't believe, and I just talked to the president. I don't believe I'm being <laughs> fired today. I'm not so frustrated in this job that I'm thinking of leaving. While oh, Kelly- that's what he was doing. He was blowing up all the myths. He was. While Kelly's dry delivery had a hint of humor, his comments also appeared to be an attempt to stave off rampant speculation about White House chaos. Allies see signs that Trump is frustrating, or frustrated with Kelly and increasingly uh, unwilling to be managed even just a little, the Los Angeles Times reported this week. A person close to the White House said that the two men had engaged in shouting matches in recent days. Kelly, though, seemed in good spirits on Thursday. Kelly's a four-star general, right? Right. Or three. Or he's, he's a general, yeah. He's, he's seen worse. He has. I mean, he's been through war. And he's not there to fight any political angle. He's yeah. there to assist the president in doing his job. And again, he's taking it to task. He's taking the media to task. Like, these are all stories I keep hearing that I'm about to quit, yeah. that I'm about to resign. I'm pretty sure I'm not quitting today. Alternative facts. He, he told them they need to get better sources. Yeah. Well, they, the neat thing <clears throat> is, as everyone quits the, the administration, they're getting better sources. Well, now they are, yeah. Now they're their sources they... You know, that they always have had. All the stories are from July when those two individuals were still in the White House. Yes. Talking of uh, Frank a... Priebus and uh, Steve Bannon. The, that, yeah. Apparently that's who the leakers are. We got a bunch of real dummies. Priebus and Bannon. Priebus and Bannon. Great uh, in other news, inmates at a high-security prison in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, killed two people and injured ten others during an attempted prison break Thursday. Uh, state officials said at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, inmates began to set fires in the sewing plant at the uh, Correctional Institute where they sew uniforms for prisoners. Uh-oh. The State Department of Public Safety said the incident was brought under control later in the afternoon. No inmates escaped during the melee. The prison has a capacity of 896 inmates with 729 inside at the time, and officials did not reveal if any of the dead were inmates or employees at the time of oh, that story. Boy. Where was the home ec teacher then? Absolutely. Plus, now there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a backlog in um, getting your... Your, your prison-issued prison garb suits, yeah. Now there will be a lot of prisoners with the old la- last year's fashions. Last year's color of orange, right? Yeah. Um, and finally, scientists working in and around Yellowstone National Park say that the super volcano sitting under the tourist attraction may blow sooner than they thought. Uh-oh. An eruption that could wipe out life on the planet. According to National Geographic, the researchers from Arizona State University analyzed materials and fossilized ash from the most recent mega eruption and found changes in temperature and composition that had only taken a few decades. Ooh. So it says, until now, the magazine reported geologists had thought it would take centuries for the supervolcano to make the transition, but now they are saying it could erupt at any moment and spew more than 1,000 cubic kilometers of rock and ash. That's 2,500 times more material than erupted from Mount St. Helens in 1980. Holy cow. The event could blanket most of the U.S. and possibly plunge the Earth into a volcanic winter. That's all right. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. There you go. Well, that would not be a so, good time. Some happy news there. Well, they that's say there's, interesting. There's magma that is flowing into the supervolcano. Uh-oh, that's never a good and sign. And the last time they were able to see, the, uh, they can detect when this happened was thousands of years it's ago. Like, and, yeah, it's yeah. like it's when you get that, it's like when you had bad sushi, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden things start moving, and you're like, ah, oh, boy. Here we go. Yeah. So Then the only question is, when? what's the magnitude? <laughs> <laughs> it's a matter of time. So, That's yeah. incredible. But um, the other side is you hear about the supervolcano quite a bit because people like to say supervolcano. 
Uh, oh yeah, that and there's been a uh, a rash, if you will, of or they what do they call it? A swarm of earthquakes mm-hmm. around the Idaho, Wyoming, yeah. Montana area, yeah. and they're like, oh no, and they're like, oh no, it's fine, don't worry about it. And it's like, okay, once you hit the 100 earthquake mark, even though they're tiny, there's quite a bit of earthquakes going on. What's happening? Wouldn't that be ironic if it was Wyoming that destroyed the world? <laughs> Huh? Seeing that the, nobody lives there and it's... Well, like nobody thinks of Wyoming as a big threat. Right. But what if it was Wyoming that but what if, terminated yeah. the earth? Well, we blame Wyoming. Oh, Wyoming. You better not yeah. get this wrong. <laughs> Why, Wyoming? Why? Why? What did we do to you? That's a, a big deal. It's yeah. a beautiful state. So let me ask you this, because mm. I was going to work on my book this weekend. Yes. Should I not? I would proceed as if everything is normal. Because I, I don't mean, want to publish a book during how, a super volcano. How are you going to prepare for a super volcano? Well, I've you, been hearing about this for a year or so. Yeah. I, I mean, know. no matter I mean, how much food you have, you have extra water at your house. Did you have an extra change of clothes? I don't think that's going to help much in, in the event of a super volcano. That's a great point. You might need a super bunker. Maybe a jacket. I don't know. You guys ever see a volcano go off? Not lately. Saw Just on TV. St. Helens bubble a little bit. Did oh, you? Yeah. Sent up some smoke about 10 years back. A little burp, a little belch. Yeah. It's pretty They're, cool, actually. So, Like everyone's just living their life all of a sudden like, what? What's going on with the volcano? But pretty much the United States would be covered in. Yeah. We live too close to the super. We actually probably, we may actually live on a part of the super volcano. They don't know. This is going to be fun. Yeah. I'm excited. Buckle in, boys. <laughs> Get ready for the ride. Yeah. I mean, that's where... You know what's great? Hmm. You you wouldn't need to worry about your Equifax information getting out. Right. Whatever. All of a sudden, life's problems don't seem that big. Holy cow. Yeah. Hawaii would probably be... It, it would probably trigger something in the Pacific. No, cause... it would ruin the entire ecosystem, I would yeah. think. Yeah. Well, Wyoming, it's up to you. Yeah, it's on you, Wyoming. Figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure there. Hey, so imagine that you live in Houston, Texas, already okay. had problems, right? right had right. A, a really difficult time recently. You live in a nice community, and then your friend, the neighbor, attorney Tony Busby, Busby. drives home uh, in his new vehicle. Huh. So if you're going to buy a nice vehicle, he bought a car, well, a vehicle for $600,000. Okay. Sounds like he got a deal. Yeah, it's a great deal. It, and um, But you, it's not like a Bugatti. It's not a... Yeah, yeah, Maserati or it's something. Not, not, it's not, it's it's a tank. It's, he bought a tank. He bought a tank. He pulls his tank into his multi-million dollar home mm-hmm. with his multi-million dollar su- uh, homes and subdivision. It's a nice thing. And he just parked it out front. Just I on mean, the curb. Well, where do you park your tank? I mean, yeah. Use your garage yeah. sufficient? I don't think so. So this particular tank, this is a special tank because it had landed in Normandy. Oh, wow. It liberated Paris and ultimately went all the way to Berlin. Mm. There's a lot of history in this tank. But now the neighbors are all upset about it. Why? Because it's it's not, by the way, it's not violating any ordinances. But for some people, it makes the homeowners in the association feel uncomfortable. There goes the neighborhood. I think the minute you tanks. have like a tank uh, gun right. pointed at your house. Well, I mean, maybe he just has it pointed down the street. Mm. Is he like sitting in the turret and like turning like, hey, Mr. Jones, and, like hey, kids, points it over it. Bob's house and hey. Okay, do you see where the Joneses live? Kate, okay, aim for their front door. <laughs> no, we're not going to fire on them, but right. the neighbors don't like it. Uh, 
And so others are like, this is a serious concern. It's a safety issue. It impedes traffic. So they're using every argument they can. And then somebody said, if you're offended, just uh, lighten up. My goodness, it isn't hurting anyone, said Busby. Mm. Just a tank. I think he may lose that argument. But it is it is historic. Sure. And this you know, tank was in Normandy. You know, for like the first hour that it was parked there. Yeah. When people first saw the tank, they were like, "Wow, look at that!" And they go look at it. Everyone's you know, everyone's cool. And then about a, a day later, somebody went, "Wait a second. Wait a minute. I don't know if I feel comfortable having a tank across the street." He says it's pretty. It's it's Americana. When people drive by, they're taken in by it. They look at it and they're like, "Hey, this is America." Could he put it in his front yard? Maybe like a lawn ornament of some kind. Curb appeal. Yeah. Like he could like have a little cement pad yeah. on an angle so you could see Some the spotlights top. Yeah, and stuff. Just give neat. it a little bit of presentation. I think we're missing the point though. What? The neighbors don't like it. Yeah, they uh, they they don't like it. They're does, jealous. Does Busby kind of feel like the kind of guy that's just going to leave it there because people don't like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of what I got. And the HOA's up. There's nothing they can do. It's not. They're not. He's not breaking a law. Right. He's it, not doing anything. Now, if he put it on his front yard, he might break a homeowner's law. Or a, a homeowner's sprinkler. Rule. He'd yeah. probably break well, a sprinkler. Well, he'd probably break a sprinkler, too. But he also, um, he's not breaking a law, so they can't do anything. So they can't ticket it. They can't tow it. It's parked legally. Hmm. Deal with it. How many tow trucks to get a tank yeah. out of the neighborhood? No idea. Yeah. What do you do when you're tow- when What do you say to the tow truck driver after he towed your tank? Go ahead. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you like that? That was cool. Okay, good. Uh, anyway, I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a piece of history. Maybe Busby ought to donate it to a place that where, where more people could see it than his neighborhood. Mm, that's why I think he should just put it in the front yard. Nice little cement pad. <laughs> Charge the neighborhood kids a dollar to climb over it. Make it an attraction. Oh, boy. Field trip for the elementary school. Come down and see him. None of this is going to matter if Wyoming blows it. Right. It really puts things into perspective when you think, wait, super volcano. Huh. Okay. Would you rather, hey, HOA, would you rather have the tank in your neighborhood or a super volcano that blows up the entire world? They come knock on your door to inform you of your infraction. You go, excuse me, super Uh, volcano. Do you see that big cloud of smoke? Shut the door. You could probably hide inside a tank if a volcano goes off. Oh, wow. Good point. point. That might be. That's how you survive. Everyone will be running to the tank. He's got a mobile bunker. Oh, boy. He's thought ahead. Here's another story. Uh, Quickly, a man's eight fall. He fell from an he fell eight stories. Hmm. This is crazy. A Colorado construction worker survived after falling eight stories from the Gaylord Hotel project near Denver International Airport. Firefighters credit a porta potty for cushioning his fall. They say the plumber is lucky he fell onto the porta potty. By how how ironic is that? Yeah, plumber on a porta potty. Yeah, it just kind of fits, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, the man was rushed to the hospital. The company he works for says he's due to follow uh, for follow up surgery, but is expected to make a full recovery. Wow. They, they did have a hard time getting the blue stain off of his arms. So. I was going to say, what did the blue liquid have to do with this? Can, what a blessing! Really, he could have landed on a pile of rebar. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's gruesome. But he fell on the porta potty, which, you know, isn't probably the best place to yeah. land, but uh, there's worse, yes. Was uh, you make sure you wonder was it being used? It didn't say. What if you're in the porta potty reading your paper? <laughs> taking your, you know, your nine thirty break. Yep. And the plumber falls through the ceiling. Bam! And all of a sudden you got the plumber in your lap. Yeah. I don't know. Man alive. <laughs> 
that man is alive. Yes, he and is. And now we can laugh about it because yeah. it was a porta potty. That's amazing. Lucky. Blessed. Eh. Kind of stinks. <laughs> In a good way. Yeah, sure. Unbelievable. Good news. See, folks, there's good news out there. Sure, the world's going to end because of a super volcano. And, it, you know, we have nothing we can do about that. But a porta potty, I'd make sure you always work above a porta potty for a variety of reasons. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about the mood elevator, how to take charge of your feelings and become a better you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and uh, survive eight-story falls. We'll be back. You know, as humans, we experience many different emotions on a daily basis. And uh, our guest today, Dr. Larry Sen, has researched these emotional ups and downs and says they're all part of a mood elevator, as he calls it. Uh, He is the author of the book, The Mood Elevator, Take Charge of Your Feelings, Become a Better You. And today he's here to uh, talk to us to to teach us a little bit better how to to control the mood elevator that we are all on and uh, better be able to deal with our challenges in life. Larry, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, delighted to be with you, Matt. What a great... what a great metaphor. What a great, I think, um, example that, that you've set up here, this idea of an elevator. Now, some of us that get the elevator idea, and, and I'll let you explain it. And some of us feel like our emotions are like a roller coaster. And, um, and so talk to us about how you came up with this elevator idea and, and, and why, why it's so helpful. Well, the work we do is really to help organizations create healthy cultures, which takes really healthy people. What we discover is that when people are at their best, they tend to have a certain set of feelings. They're more hopeful and optimistic. They're more creative and resourceful. They're more innovative. They're more wise and insightful. And they have really clear thinking. And and that's when they're in what we call the higher levels of the mood elevator. But, you know, we all drop down to impatient, frustrated, irritated, bothered, worried, anxious, defensive, insecure, judgmental, blaming, self-righteous, all the way on down to depressed and uh, those, that's part of the elevator we ride. And it turns out when we're in those lower levels, our thinking is very unreliable. In fact, if you've ever said something to a loved one you wish you could take back, you were probably down there somewhere toward the basement of the mood elevator. Mm, that's right. You were in the basement, weren't you? <laughs> right, right, right. Now, the mood elevator, it, what it implies and it infers, and a lot of people may not believe this or get it, is that it's something we can control. There are buttons we can push or there are buttons that others may push that are taking us on this ride. But we are, to some degree, in some of the control of this. Well, first, a disclaimer in the fact that we all will tend to ride this thing. But what we found is there are certain things you can do which will create uh, – trying to change your frequency distribution, where you ride it, how long you stay down, how you get up. And there are things that, that get you up. I mean – What's important to understand is that really our thinking creates our moods. If we have worried thoughts, we have worried feelings. If we have angry thoughts, we have angry feelings. On the other hand, if we have grateful thoughts, we have grateful feelings. So it's almost as if we're a Hollywood producer of our own movie through our thinking. And with that comes all the Hollywood special effects that go with each of the levels of the mood elevator. So, yes, you can impact, and and we have found a number of ways that people can impact the mood elevator. 
And and I, I guess you're you're saying the beginning of that is thinking. Is it have, is it possible, Larry, in your experience to um, to be in a mood that you're not cognitively aware of the thoughts that are causing it? Yes, normally you're not. Yeah, uh, you're, they're pretty invisible to you, and that's why I, I never leave home without my mood elevator card because. The important thing is to develop an awareness, and the way you know is through your feelings. You may not know what the thinking is, but I know when I'm feeling optimistic. I know when I'm feeling judgmental. There's a feeling that goes with that, and if I can learn to notice that feeling, that becomes my clue to do something about it. Yeah, that's the guide. I mean, that's the indicator. It's almost like we work in the automotive industry, and we've got these amazing dashboards on cars right now that will tell you if you've got a low air in your back tire but we've got we've got a dashboard to to our emotions and that's this that's our moods so our, our th- feelings. so our our moods um uh our moods impact our thinking and our thinking impacts our mood yes it, it can be circular it's interesting when people say well can you really get out of a bad mood well let's say you really are depressed about something and it's pretty significant something in your life and but um your buddy calls up and says, oh, my gosh, I just scored four tickets to Hamilton. Mm. And you're my best friend. Would you bring your wife? We're going to have dinner. In fact, we're going to go backstage and meet the cast. And all of a sudden, where are you on the mood elevator? You've forgotten those other things. You're thinking about this wonderful event coming up. All that happened is your thinking changed. Nothing else changed but your thinking. I guess another great example is for many people is you have a really long, hard day. You're feeling pretty discouraged. You're not sure you're feeling overwhelmed. You're not sure you can handle it. Then you get a really good night's sleep. You get up and take a walk on a sunny day, and bam, it all looks different. Nothing changed but your thinking. <laughs> that's so true, huh? And I, I guess um, that, that that's being aware of your mood elevator. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of us are so not wanting to get into our emotions that we are numbing them. We try to get rid of them. Well, it's actually a, a challenging level we call unhealthy normal. I know uh, I live here in California, and when I, I know when I go to visit my son in Hawaii, the sky is so blue and the clouds are so white. Sometime when I fly back in here, I go, oh, my God, I live in that smog. Yeah, yeah. Or, or somebody lives next to a freeway, and they stop listening and hearing the noise. Well, we can create unhealthy normal levels. Someone who just lives almost always get irritated. And so they don't notice it anymore. Someone who is judgmental most of the time, they don't notice it. And so until it becomes a loud bell, until you can notice it, you can't do anything about it. So mm. the first step is really to be aware of your feelings, to notice them. And then I guess noticing them too also would help you correct them because but you're saying what our moods are, our feelings are, would generate our behaviors throughout the day, what we do, what we choose not to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that, so um, that, and that, that, by the way, I guess organizationally, when you have 150 people with moods and and behavior, then you could actually create a culture of a certain mood. Yes, it's interesting. We have one client, a, a large hospital. It's a, a series of eight hospitals and a children's hospital. They happen to have some of the highest patient satisfaction scores in America, the highest mm. employee engagement scores in America. And They've used this concept, in fact, in the nursing station. They've got a six-foot-tall mood elevator on the wall, and the nurses have taken their tongue depressors with, with, uh, with uh, uh, magnets on them, and they 
and they put them where they are, and so they and then they talk about it. If somebody's down, they'll talk to them to try to bring them up. And so, just this notion of we need to be at our best in order to meet patients who are really coming in, and they're probably on the lower levels. They're probably worried. They're probably concerned. They're anxious. That's so true, isn't it? And uh, do, what what do you see like overall? Where where would you see the average person is? Most of the day, is there is there a norm? Is there an average floor that most of us tend to live on? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. There is a middle to the elevator, and it's uh, an interesting spot. Um, um, and what it's called is is curious and interested. So let's say somebody does something that you may not agree with or understand. You can either go to irritated, bothered, self righteous. You can go, gee, I wonder why they see it that way. Maybe I should ask a question. Uh, maybe something happens to us in life, and we're we and we can either go to depressed about there, say, "Huh, what's the lesson I can learn from that?" So this the ability to at least get to curious. I know I was I was talking on a podcast to David Novak, who's mm-hmm. just recently retired CEO of of Yum Brands, 1.7 million people around the world. Wrote a book called Taking People With You, where he talks about the mood elevator, and he said, he said, Larry, when I get up in the morning, he says. I've got to at least get up to curious. <laughs> says, if I, I'll make my best decisions when I'm way up there at the top at gratitude. And so he recognizes that his thinking's clearer then, and that will help him be a better leader. That's interesting. So the highest level is gratitude of the elevator? It is. So gratitude's uh, what could be called an overriding emotion. It's uh, it, when you're feeling, when you're really... Main, the main reason we're down in life is we lose our perspective. The fact everybody probably in this call, if you think about it, you're in the fraction of percent of people in the world, if you look at the total world, in terms of what you have, a roof over your head, uh, people you know or you love. And we lose sight of that. We get all caught up in the small stuff. But if you can maintain a gratitude perspective, just be aware of what you have, that, that's very powerful. And when we're feeling gratitude – it kind of overrides all of the other feelings we have. That's true, huh? And and really, I guess your premise is, if you're feeling gratitude, the thoughts will follow. If you're feeling gratitude, then you're actually what happens is interesting. Our thinking is very busy. It's very uh, circular in the lower levels. Think of uh, something like worry or judgment. It's these thoughts going around and around and around. On the other hand... Gratitude for me might be watching a sunset, and it's almost no thinking. It's mm. just almost a pure feeling. So our mind gets quieter, and when you think about it, where do our most uh, best ideas come from? Typically when we quiet down, they, they say that people get more great ideas in the shower or taking a walk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why? Our mind has quieted down, we've, we've, and then we got access to a, a higher intelligence, I believe, yeah. when that happens. Well, and symbolically, uh, you know, if you're somebody that believes in a higher power or God, then you can see symbolically getting higher up in the elevator would bring you to a closer space to your God. Absolutely. And, and so the underlying premise is, of the whole thing is this, and it came from my mother who, when I was young, told me over and over again that I'd been born in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, my natural state was to be loving, compassionate, curious, wise, and successful. Hmm. And I could do anything I, I chose to. And she said, when you're not there, it's because of an error in your thinking. So it really, that led me to believe is that there is uh, something that I believe is innate health. I have 
five kids. Actually, range in age from 17 to 52. Oh, wow. How great. And, and, and five grandkids. And when they come into the world, kids are very curious. They ask more questions. They're more loving. They're more trusting. Then what happens is we, life, we, we meet life. Yeah. And someone tells us that's not right. We can't say that. We begin to develop these beliefs that get in our way. And so I believe the work we do is simply getting people back to the best of who they already are. And that's why the title of the book is <clears throat> Take Charge of Your Feelings, Become a Better You. We all have a, be- a best self. It's there. Yeah. We know when we have that best self. It's when we're really curious, we're loving, we're open, we're creative, we hear better, we appreciate life more. And when we're in that space, we really can accomplish so much. We're, we're great leaders, we're great parents, we're great partners. But we also can drop down to the lower levels through our thinking. And so some of the tips are these. One is called a pattern interrupt. If you can just shift the thinking, take a walk, read a book, do something that shifts the thinking, you can shift the mood. But there are two things we found that are proven to measurably shift the mood elevator. One is simply taking better care of yourself. You know, when we when we get run down, we catch colds more easily. When we get run down, we catch moods more easily. That's true, <laughs> so huh? Just, just getting some sleep, getting some exercise, just taking care of yourself, that will elevate your mood. You'll be less susceptible to sliding down. But the other one we talked about, and that's gratitude. Uh, there, there's this practice that uh, Martin Seligman, who wrote the book Flourish, talks about called Three Blessings. And it's just simply think of three small things each day, each morning or evening, you're grateful for. And what he's proven in his studies is that's equally or more powerful than therapy or drugs Mm. (laughs) for many people. And for me, it might be on the road just saying, oh my God, I've got a great pillow here tonight. Yeah. Or I'm getting to bed at a decent hour or or small things. It's interesting. Um, That simple activity immediately is pushing the button to the the highest floor in the mood. It is. Anything that quiets your mind, whether it's meditation, prayer, Just when you quiet your mind, you'll go to a better place. That's such a great – and what I love, too, about it is um, you're saying, too, that we already have all of these upper floors of gratitude, wisdom, creativity, resourcefulness, patience. We have those. Those floors are available. We just have to access them instead of accessing the easier ones that are naturally downhill. Yes, it's actually who we are in our natural state. And, and to me, that's very reassuring to, to the, that, my, that who I really am is those things. When I'm not there, it's just been a, I've just, my thinking's off. No, absolutely. Is, um, when, when you, how have you seen this change lives of people? I mean, you're teaching it all of the time. You're, you're teaching it organizationally, but also on personal levels. What, what impact is the paradigm shift having? Well, we, for example, as a company, we have the client with the highest customer loyalty in America, the highest customer service in America, the most agile company in America. So on an organizational level, it's having profound impacts. We are doing major mergers of companies because we're bringing people together who can be very judgmental of each other. But on the personal level, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm touched periodically. I got a note from uh, the Mood Elevator is part of a broader two-day seminar we do for executives. And I got a note from the wife of a the chief financial officer of a large Midwest bank, and she said, I'm not sure who you sent home, but I like it. You can keep, you can keep the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so we have seen some major shifts in people in terms of 
just how they see life, how they live life. Mm. And I mean, again, it's um, it's there's certain activities. So really, the act doing the activity would shift it because you it will start to shift the feeling. Yes. So find out what works for you. Is it is it take is it getting up and taking a walk? Is it? I mean, I. I call either my wife, Bernadette, or my daughter, Kendra, who actually helped set this call up, because they're such positive people. Just hearing their voice and talking to them raises my spirit. So mm. surround yourself with people who can lift your spirit. Take care of yourself. Get some sleep. Uh, exercise uh, creates endorphins. It's almost like a free drug that will move you up the mood elevator. Do, do you? Because part of human nature, too, is, I guess— follow the course of least resistance. So it seems like a lot of us might, you know, go down in the mood elevator. And I mean, I've, I've heard it also be called a funk where you, you actually get stuck on a floor. Do you, do you ever see yeah. that happening? Yes. And we all do. I mean, we all are human. We all, we all have our thoughts go all over the place. So we can get stuck in a, in a funk. What's interesting is that uh, I try to do things. My wife is more philosophical. She just says, she just says, uh, this too shall pass. In fact, uh, early in our marriage, we used to, like everybody, have some fights. And we learned this stuff. We made a deal with each other that we wouldn't talk about any issues if either of us were in the lower floors of the mood elevator. And it actually scared me at first because the drama went out of our relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the way it works now is I'll say, do you want to talk about that? Well, I'll let you know later. So yeah. We finally discuss it when we're really in a healthy place. It's almost a by the way, I didn't realize I did that. Sorry. Love you, honey. And it's done. And, and so just learning little techniques like that can shift the quality of your life. And they're, they're all there. In fact, uh, the last chapter of the book has like a dozen things you can do <laughs> to shift your place on the mood elevator. That's great. Do you, do you notice, um, I mean, it, it, what, what a great advice. Be, like I teach, the, you got to check your own vital signs before you're having these conversations. You're saying you got to know where you are on the elevator and to have a to have a conversation in the lower uh, end of the elevator it's you're all you're going to do is be angry stressed and that will just create an angry and stressed conversation exactly in fact one of the chapters in the book is about doing down well cuz you have to learn how to do down well i remember the uh, ceo of uh, Eli Lilly said you know Larry i can't always be up on the mood elevator but i can learn to do no harm Mm. and learning to do no harm by realizing when you're there, knowing your thinking is unreliable. And then, you know, when you absolutely feel like you have to tell somebody something, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's where you need to, that's where you need to stop. <laughs> right. Just take a deep breath and back off a bit. Because it, it really is interesting. It's not, I think when a lot of people hear of, you know, concepts like positive psychology and be positive and they think, uh, blah, blah, blah. But... But like you said, too, some people do thrive, it seems like. Some people like the downside of the elevator. Some people do thrive on the drama or the energy of it. And you're just saying if, if you tend to be one of those people, make sure you know how to do the down well. Yeah. So you're not impacting everyone else. Yes. Yes. But it's interesting, too, because it's contagious, right? Like, I mean, oh, it is. I, if somebody walks in and they're on the downside of the elevator, I, I can pick it up. And I might follow that lead if I'm not careful. No, they've actually shown research that even if someone doesn't speak, you bring a really negative person into a room, a meeting, it will infect that. That will be felt. And so we all, you know, we work a lot with senior leaders. And there's a concept that came out of my early research, which was I wrote the first uh, 
research ever on the concept of corporate culture. In fact, my informal title is the father of corporate culture. That's the work we do. Uh, and But part of the finding of that research was that organizations tend to become shadows of their leaders. Hmm. That's why David Novak said, I'm the leader, therefore I have to check my mood. So I, I do think if you're a parent or a leader, there's some kind of obligation to really be, to, to work to be your best self and to do no harm. Because you're, every moment, every time, casting a shadow, you walk into a meeting, people, you're grumpy, the whole meeting gets that. You come in the door, they notice that. You come home at night from work, and, and your family's affected by that. So this, this, this idea that we, that whether we lead families or lead, lead organizations or lead teams, that we need to be aware of where we are because we affect others by it. We infect others by it, as you said. Mm. What would you say as we uh, get ready to let you go? What If there's one thing, just one thing I can do today to, uh, to really start taking advantage of uh, the mood elevator and start managing my emotion better, what would that one thing be? I'd actually give you two. One is count your blessings. Somehow find a way to be more grateful. And the second is take better care of yourself. Pretty simple, huh? Yep, pretty simple. Basic stuff. Well, we appreciate you. Uh, this is great work. Dr. Larry Sen and uh, his uh, book, The Mood Elevator, Take Charge of Your Feelings, Become a Better You. Really, truly powerful insight. When you think about the ability that you have to recognize your own emotion, to manage your own emotion, I mean, how can you beat that? And then all of a sudden start you know, creating a contagion effect where other people start to improve their moods as well. Interesting stuff. That's why we do it, to help you uh, live healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you got to learn to manage your emotions, to watch your emotions. And uh, like we learned, to, on the mood elevator, take the mood elevator. Boy, there's a, a couple of guys in New Jersey that uh, really would have benefited had they known more about the mood elevator. They had a squabble over Taylor ham versus a pork roll, right? So a, a brand of ham versus a, brand, a pork roll. Uh, it led to a dispute over breakfast meat that ended up with one man being arrested for assault in Hackettstown. Uh, the police said uh, to a, they responded to a Hackettstown apartment early Saturday morning for reports of a fight over the stolen Taylor ham. Police said two men in uh, a Main Street apartment had gotten into the fist fight around 2.45 a.m. By the way, you know it's bad when it's 2.45 in the morning and you're fighting over ham. Uh, the victim had red abrasions and swelling on his face. In fact, uh, it, the red abrasions and swelling was compared to a ham, the color of a ham. The, last time I was on, we had a story about someone fighting, throwing top ramen, and now it's ham. Oh, yeah. There's always something. Yeah. These people, Food they related. just don't know how to manage their emotions. The police said uh, after being punched by Christian Guerra during the fight, um, they, uh, that's what caused the abrasions and the swelling. Guerra was arrested and charged with simple assault. Uh, by the way, you don't like salt on the ham, by the way. 
Too salty. Too salty. Uh, it's those, uh, yeah, it's bad for your heart as well. He was law, uh, then uh, taken to the Warren County Correctional Facility. So if you don't know how to take the mood elevator, folks, then you're probably going to be taking that special ride in the back of a police car as your uh, as your face is swollen like a ham. The ham cab. Ham cab. Take a ride on the ham train. You want to get on the ham train? I love it. I love the ham train. Hey, here's kind of, I guess, um, this might be a sign that says it's time to get married. Uh, You know this is a match made in heaven because the couple were born on the same day in the same Massachusetts hospital. And so two decades later, they decided to uh, tie the knot. Jessica Gomez and Aaron Byros got married September 9th. Each was born April 28th, 1990, at the same hospital, about 40 miles south of Boston, the two grew up in communities a few miles apart, but uh, they eventually met through some mutual friends in high school. Gomez says she and Byros figured out they were born on the same day pretty early on, right? Like, hey, so what's your birthday? Are you an Aries or a Taurus? And when the, the drivers uh, took a driver's education class together, that's when they really figured out because they on their learner's permits, they they figured out exactly where that what city, what place they were born when they were filling out their information. And then it was love at first sight. Interesting. They knew. The same hospital can bring people together. My wife and I, not even knowing it until we were engaged, we went to the same junior, the same, what's it, preschool. Wow. We used to fight over little bikes in the little preschool yard. Didn't even know it. And nothing has changed. Now we fight over cars (laughs) and other things. Uh, Anyway, match made in heaven. Little, Little things that might make you say, hmm. Interesting stuff, folks. That's what makes being a human such a fun, fun pursuit. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking with McKenna Baus. Baus will be in the house with a little mind bender. That's straight ahead right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're back with McKenna Baus. Baus is in the house, uh, one of our great producers that likes to do little mind benders with us. That is my favorite thing. And it used to be that when we'd go to work, we we you know we dress up. You'd get on your khakis and your shirt, and you'd look good. Sometimes you'd wear your suit, but nowadays people are getting a uniform of sort. Yeah. So you know, the in the past Fridays. You look forward to it because it's casual, casual Friday. Friday. yeah. You can, you know, dress down a bit, finally be maybe a little bit comfortable in the clothes that you're wearing right, at work. Right, right. Um, but we're moving into this new era where casual is starting to become the norm in a lot of places. And there's a lot of companies and individuals who are thinking that track suits, athleisure is really the future no, of workwear. These yoga pants everyone's wearing. I mean, they take I mean, it's crazy what people wear. Yeah. And so what's really cool is that people have realized that athleisure stuff, it's comfortable. You you know, people feel like they're able to work better and they're able to, you know, go from place to place in it. You know, you yeah. can be out and about running errands, you can go to the gym, go to work. And so there's these companies that are trying to like Market. use that kind of material and that type of Wear, but make it a little more luxe and make it something you wear in the office, but it's still at its core. Yeah. More your workout clothes, but nice looking. Man, Larry, your suit sure is breathable. Exactly. Thank you. 
Because for such a long time, when it's come to professional wear, it's been appearance over functionality. It's true, huh? Very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It creases all over the place. You have to spend a million hours ironing it, especially if you're traveling a lot, pulling it out of your suitcase, trying to deal with that. And it really slows you down. You lose a lot of time. And, you know, for women having to maybe wear heels, try, trying to do a commute right. in that, really Well, and people now, they're always saying, yeah, you need to ride your bike to work or you need to commute and it's not easy. So you carry easy. a garment bag? Yeah, exactly. exactly. There's not this good alternative to the way that our lives are changing. That's cool. And so that is what this That's... new trend, but really they see it more as a complete shift, not yeah. a temporary thing. Um, That's great. The benefits that it's going to provide. And probably better fibers, more breathable, fit you better. Exactly. Better quality. Yeah. Maybe you don't need so much tailoring. Exactly. So, you know, potentially, you know, going to be more affordable in that way, or at least affordable to look sharp. And what's great, you can now wear your suit to go, you know, exercise. (laughs) Yeah. You know, maybe it goes both ways. Just take my tie off and then run on my treadmill. Yeah. And another really cool benefit of the whole way this works is that, there's studies done at Harvard that show people who intentionally resist convention when it comes to, you know, sort of the way they dress come across as more competent and powerful. Really? Yeah. They call it the red sneaker effect. Yeah. And this is sort of how this trend started is those people, sort of the Mark Zuckerbergs of yeah. the world. This, the Steve Jobs just wearing that one Shirt. Shirt. Yeah. Exactly. They were able to sort of have this start going. And now That's if cool. you are a person who feels confident in your ability to put yeah. together an outfit, this is a direction you really can look at as it gains more. Yes, I think power. it's cool stuff. Plus, I think, too, if you could make it a uniform that you could just wear every day and you always knew, like, if you only had one shirt, but you had 20 of the same shirt, how easy would life so be? So much easier. Then I could think of everything else. McKenna, thanks. That's uh, pretty interesting stuff for all of us. Hey, straight ahead, uh, screen cleaning. Remember, because it's Friday, we like to give you a little, a little gift here from the Matt Townsend Show. So Jeff Simpson will take over the rest of the show an entire hour talking talking about uh, media, technology, and the movies, keeping it clean using our great uh, new program with Jeff Simpson, Screen Cleaning. That's straight ahead. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson, and every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, My mission, which I choose to accept, by the way, what movie, Cole, or what show? Mission Impossible. Ding, 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 ding. My mission is to help you and your family find quality entertainment to enjoy together. And hopefully you'll find some of that quality entertainment here on this very show. Each week we interview the people in the biz, we bring you exclusive trailers and commercials, and we bring you the very best in entertainment news. Speaking of which, Cole, uh, let's talk about our picks for the best entertainment news from the past week. So, uh, first of all, the best reappearance news. Are you familiar with David S. Pumpkins? All right, so you've stumped me on this. I always, I try to like come a little prepared when it's a Friday morning, but (laughs) when I was looking down the list, this is one that I had no idea. Okay, so back in a Halloween episode of Saturday Night Live, Tom Hanks made an appearance as a character that was just so baffling and bizarre that immediately people took to Twitter and the costume that he wears in the sketch 
immediately sold out on eBay and wherever else it was sold. But I believe we have a clip of that original sketch on Saturday Night Live. How's it hanging? I'm David Pumpkins. <laughs> And apparently people didn't really have any questions. They just liked that character so much. And uh, again, like I said, the suit that which features – it's a black suit with orange pumpkins all over it. And uh, it just sold out like that. And he recently made a reappearance on Saturday Night Live in a hip-hop music video. Anyway, if you're curious to see that, go check it out. And if you haven't seen it, Cole – Check out David S. Pumpkins. Sounds like I'll have to. All right. And Cole, I had to do this one. This is actually the best remake news for Cole. I made sure to put for Cole. They recent, And I'm surprised you didn't even know about this. They recently redid Dirty Dancing on ABC. And I believe we have some music from that that is probably dear to your heart. Oh, there we go. That sounds... That's awesome. That, of course... The time of my life, and in parentheses preceding that, I've had. Anyway, uh, yeah, they, re- they recently had it, Cole. I thought you'd be really excited to know that, so that one was just for you. And uh, unfortunately, it's not being very well received. It's got Abigail Breslin in it, whom you love. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, I guess just go watch the original again. I that's what I, that's what I'm planning on doing. There's been a lot of these remakes on television of the classic kind of musicals, whether they do them live or they seem like they could be live. It's the new fad that uh, yeah. Sound of Music ushered in. I'm not ashamed to say I've never seen the original Dirty Dancing. Oh. I'm not ashamed. All those songs. Just go listen to the soundtrack at least on your drive home today. Okay. It'll brighten your day. All right. Well, um, let's do this. We've got one more uh, best of that we want to share with you here. The best restaurant news. After all, going out and eating out is part of your entertainment as well. Industry Kitchen in New York is offering a wood-fired pizza that is sprinkled luxuriously with 24-karat gold leaves. White Stilton cheese is flown in from England. The foie, the foie gras and truffles are from France. Caviar is scooped from the Caspian Sea and gold leaves glitter from Ecuador. Executive chef Brolio Bunet says he was inspired to create this over-the-top indulgence by the nearby financial district, which attracts the wealthy from all over the world. It is the epitome of decadence, he said. The pizza is extremely rich. If you're in the mood for a lavish meal, this is the pizza for you. It's definitely up there in terms of the most expensive meals he's made, but preparing it in the form of a pizza makes it more approachable, he says. If you want to try this decadent delight, you need to order it 48 hours in advance. And, uh, Cole, how much would you say a pizza like this would cost? All right, so I've done some math kind of thoughts. If if Little Caesars is $5, your normal Pizza Hut Domino's, Papa John's is in like the $11, $12 range – um, and it's still just pizza. We're talking like triple, like 30 bucks for a medium, maybe. I'll tell you this. Uh, that would be closer to how much each slice would cost if it oh. were cut into eight pieces. The pizza is $2,000. And again, you have to order it 48 hours in advance. 
And people are sure they don't want to just buy a used car for this price. <laughs> That's they a good point. You could pizza. do a lot with that $2,000. When we return, we'll be speaking with Stacy Harkey from Studio C coming up next here on the Ma- or <laughs> on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. A forbidden love. Dancing with decadence. I look at the sun and it says, Je touche le bleu. Indulgence. Stilton. I am gold. I am gold. I swim in the Caspian Sea. The shells sparkling, smooth to the touch. Je suis amoureux de la pizza. Don't hate me because I'm pizza. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for the film The Mountain Between Us on BYU Radio. The Mountain Between Us stars Kate Winslet as Alex and Idris Elba as Ben. Both of them are at the airport trying to get to important events, but no commercial planes are flying. Instead, they book a pilot and a two-passenger plane to take them over the Rocky Mountains. Tragedy strikes in the air, and the two survive the crash with injuries, but the pilot does not. Next, they must survive winter in January in the Rockies. The acting in this film is on par with the cast. Idris Elba and Kate Winslet are both wonderful actors. The film does become a little predictable. The arc of the story has the main characters disliking the other and even blaming each other for their problems to actually becoming enamored. That seemed strange since Alex's character was heading to her wedding. The movie does show some of the harsh survival skills one would need in an unforgiving winter climate. This film was not made for its accuracy, though. This film was made to enjoy a story on the big screen, and the filmmakers succeeded in presenting that story in an entertaining way. This is not a film that will change your life, but you may enjoy taking a little time to appreciate the story. Parents will want to know that there are some bloody injuries shown. Also, the pilot gets buried on the mountainside. There is also an intense and a little lengthy scene of sexuality. There is some language in the film and some adult situations dealing with relationships. The Mountain Between Us is rated PG-13, and I am giving it a B-. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill, and this has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you are in for a treat here today because we have... Stacy Harkey, who is one of the cast members of the very popular television program, a little program you may have heard of called Studio C. Hey, hey, I am super stoked to be here. So you've been with Studio C since the very beginning. Yes, I've been. I was just a shadow in the very beginning, like like Phantom of the Opera, like in the rafters. You kind of didn't see me, maybe did. There were hints of me. So you were the spooky guy <laughs> playing the music and wearing a, a mask. That is exactly what I To hide your hideous yeah. uh, disfigurement. <laughs> but now you are, you are no longer a featured player. You are a main cast member. And not only that, but you are one of the two cast members that uh, was chosen to, to be one of the interviewees on the Conan O'Brien show, or Conan, if you will. Yeah, I am, I'm way more involved than I used to be now. Um, everyone's amazing, and so I, I mean, everyone can pick up. Every everyone's involved in heavily, obviously. But um, yeah, I don't know how I got chosen for the for Conan O'Brien show, but I was. <laughs> I have some theories. Like maybe it was because 
it was Black History Month, and they they were like, hey, let's you know let's show BYU TV's diversity. They told me that Conan decided and asked for me, which oh. is super flattering. I don't mm. believe it though, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so what was that like? Was that totally nerve wracking? Uh, yeah, and it's funny if you see the video. There's like. No way I'm hiding it. Matt Matt and I were both pretty nervous. And you watch him and he is just like at home. He looks like he was born there. And I look like I have never been on a couch before. Like I'm just super nervous. My legs going like 100 miles an hour. But I was so stoked to be there. It was like an excited nervous. I hope. Yeah. So I think I, I hinted at the fact that we had another Studio C cast member on the show before. And it was Matt Meese. And we had an interesting conversation about being an introvert versus being an extrovert. And he said that he considered himself uh, an introverted person. And he said, it, you know, it would probably surprise a lot of people to know that most of the of the cast of Studio C is introverted, except yep. one person. <laughs> and we've got that one person here with us today. So you would you admit that you're an extrovert? I, I would. I, I will also admit that my, like... Um... When it, where I fall in the introverted, extroverted spectrum is constantly changing. Really? And yeah. I grew up incredibly shy and incredibly reserved. And I was just – I was an observer and a listener. I didn't really talk much to people. I would break out in sweats if I had to. And over the course of like, you know, serving an LDS mission and doing security cells in Philadelphia, things like that, it really like taught me how to embrace my extroverted side. Right. So I'm kind of – now I'm kind of a wild extrovert. Interesting. What is it that separates you from the other cast members as far as being extroverted being as, um, versus being an introvert? Well, beauty, first off. Yes. Poise. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't really know. I think I am – yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Because, I mean, I consider Matt – because we were talking about this a little earlier. Yeah. I kind of consider Matt an extrovert in the sense that he has to be around people. That's where he gets his energy from. But he's not exactly like – as emotive or like in your face as I am. Yeah. Like when I, when you get to know me or even when you first meet me, I don't give you a chance to accept me or not. I just throw it on you and it's like, eh, you're, you can have this. It's like, yeah. this is who I am. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's fair? I mean, obviously you are, are more in the public eye than anybody here at BYU radio is. Cause they don't they never see us. <laughs> you're in the public ear. Yeah. That's the term we use. Yeah. In the end. I'm just <laughs> and especially in a place like Provo, mm-hmm. Um, you, I'm sure you get hounded all the time, either for autographs or for pictures or, Hey, do such and such a character. Do you think it's fair for people to, this isn't to say anything bad about, you know, your fans or anything like that, but do you think just in general, do you think it's fair for somebody to be able to just expect you to turn on this uh, switch and just say, perform for me right now? Um, that's a really, really good question. And I will say that my experience with Studio C, and especially as, as it's been growing and drawing more attention, it has made me understand why Britney Spears like shaved her head and mm. like went like kind of crazy because it is you lose so much privacy. And I do think and this is this might come out weird, but I do think it is fair for people to to because, you know, they, they people they barely see you. They see you once. They, they're just really excited about it. And they don't realize that we get this all the time, that we rarely get the time to, to finish a meal without people interrupting us sometimes. Yeah. And so I think on the other end, it's, it's fair for people to ask that. But I also think it's fair for you to set boundaries. And, um, and I think I'm probably one of the best at that, too, in the cast, which probably helps. I'm the best at saying, hey, I appreciate this so much, but right now is not a good time. Yeah. And, and most of the time, people understand. Sure. And they're super... They're super cool. But every now and then you get people that are just like, well, 
I still want you to sign my daughter's shoe. <laughs> I told one lady once, I was like, I'm super late for a meeting and I don't really have time. And she was like, really? Really? And I was like, yes, I'm not, I'm not joking. And we do, as, we do as much as we can, but sometimes you just have to draw boundaries and say, man. Like there was a time when we were at a restaurant with a friend who was mourning the loss of a, of a, of a Ooh, close, close friend. Yeah. And you know what I mean? It's one of those moments where it's like, that's not a good time for us to be taking pictures and signing stuff. And and people seem to understand, but that was just we just have to be we have to be willing to draw boundaries and say not right now is not a good time. That's good. That's good. And uh, th- see, that is something that would be very difficult for me. Um, it's tough. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because it seems like this sort of thing wouldn't really happen in another profession. You know, like. What if there was like a math teacher and somebody went up to him and was like, "Hey, hey, you know that you know that equation you did in class? Could you could you like pull it out for us right now and start doing it?" Yeah, it doesn't happen with other professions, it's true. but it, you know, good for you for being a good sport about it. And uh, yeah, there, like you said, there is some truth to it that. If all these viewers didn't start watching Studio C, then you probably wouldn't yeah. be having the job and, that you ever know. And it's kind of a, a good problem. And some people love the limelight and love that kind of attention. I don't think anyone in Studio C really thrives on that kind of attention. Sure. But the fact that people love the show and as a result want to – are excited to see us is that's – a, that's a good problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not bad. So is this something that you've always wanted to do? I mean you said you were used to be shy, but what if – I mean – I'm not talking about like being a 10-year-old boy and saying, I want to be a fireman, you know. I'm just saying, what is it, you know, as you got older and started to recognize your strengths, what is it that you wanted to do and is this it? Well, um, I never considered comedy one of my strengths, ever. I came into BYU um, wanting to find a major that was good for law school. That was my Mm. plan was to, yeah, to to practice law. And so I, I ended up studying PR, which was reading like research and writing intense. And I was really excited about that. But I, I ended up auditioning for this comedy group for a friend. He asked, he was like, I'm really nervous. I want to do it. Will you do it with me? And I was like, uh, I want to be supportive. So yes. And it ended up changing my life in the wildest of ways. It was Divine Comedy, which yeah. you were in. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, I can't, I, it's, I totally just give credit to a, to a greater being that knows what's up. It's yeah. not me. <laughs> That is cool. Um, so what would you say – I mean you've played dozens of characters and you know, you've know you been in this amazing cast of really funny people. Uh, what, it, what would you say are some of your more favorite sketches that you've done? Oh my goodness. Some of my favorite sketches are the fans' least favorites, which I don't <laughs> mind. Um, there was one I – well, one of my faves is the Be Still My Heart sketch where the girls are at the mall and they're seeing these cute guys that have like something really weird and off with them like Stephen has a face in his stomach, something really weird like that. <laughs> um, but – for me, I was the first guy where from the back, like my shoulders and stuff, I look very like brawny and like strong. And then I turn around and I'm just a total goofball. But what, the reason I love that is because they gave me <laughs> – I show up on set ready to play the hot guy from the back, you know. And they had a, a, a double. They had some dude come and play the good-looking dude from the back. <laughs> so oh. that was – it was uh, – it was – Sad, but mostly funny. Like, I was so entertained by that. It cracked me up. But that sketch turned out wonderful, and I love it. So fun. Are there any sketches that you guys have done that turned out to – you got laughs out of moments that you weren't expecting it? Oh. Um, anytime someone messes up. Yeah. That's an unplanned laugh. When they break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it happens often, and that's why we – man, we really love the live audience feel. With the, like, the divine comedy, the Studio C, where it's like – 
you perform your sketches in front of people and you have this amazing joke that you're so stoked about that no one laughs at. And it's a time for you to swallow your pride and be like, all right, Let's maybe that's on. not that funny. Let's change yeah. that. Or um, you have a moment where they laugh at something and you're like, I did not see that coming. Mm-hmm. I wish I could think of an example of one of those. And then you milk it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you just, for all it's worth, you just yeah, stay on yeah. that gag for, you just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So I, I know that fans of the show might be interested in hearing about maybe some behind the scenes stories or something that was Ooh. funny that happened that wasn't, that wasn't seen on screen or in front of an audience. Mm, let's see. So for our live shows, we do lip sync battles. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and Mallory um, always she has this Michael Jackson man in the mirror we can't air it because of copyright right yeah but um, she does Michael Jackson's man in the mirror and she has every slight little like oh ah, she has every little tick and tweak <laughs> and it is golden it's so funny and it's one of those things where we had we had some of the executives come the higher ups and they were like we, we want people to see this but we're always stuck with copyright yeah which is mm. fair totally fair so just one one more question before we take a break here. Um, so I'm just curious to know who some of your influences are, like oh, what man. you watch that uh, that really inspires you. I I grew up watching, and this is this is so funny. I I never considered myself a comedian, but I love 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 comedy. I grew up watching uh, stand up. I would just watch stand up for just for hours on TV and uh, sketch comedy, Mad TV, SNL. Now we have Key and Pill, which all these shows are. It's they're very much like when it comes to quality and cleanliness, it's just you never know what you're going to get. And it's always a crapshoot, you know. And so um, it, it's so awesome to have a chance to create sketch comedy or comedy period that people can watch and not have to worry about. It's going to be something I'm, I feel bad watching or something that I wouldn't watch with my family. Right. So. Yeah. Oh, because we've all been in those situations where we're watching something that we think is really funny, but maybe we forget about this one part and somebody's mom or grandma is in the room and it's <laughs> the most mortifying experience you can have. Anyway, but yeah, that's, you know, one of the reasons I had you on the show is because we really, on the show, we, we really tried to put a spotlight on, on good entertainment. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, we, we count you as, as part of that uh, mission to, to bring good entertainment to the world and be able to watch a show finally with your grandma that you don't yeah. have to squirm. <laughs> um, I want to do something really interesting with you, something that we like to call Silver Lining Cinema. <laughs> We're each going to watch a film that pretty much everybody else in the entire world would consider bad and horrible and unwatchable. And we're going to do our darndest to talk about the good in these films and to just focus on the positive. So we've got this uh, spinning wheel uh, here that's full of films that other people would consider just horrible, unwatchable, no good. So Stacy, you're my guest. I'm going to spin the wheel first here for you. So let me just give it a spin here. So it looks like you are going to be watching a little film called Nuki. Ooh, okay. Nuki. Nuki. So, okay, let's spin it once here for me. And it looks like I will be watching 
Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh. We'll watch them. We'll come back, and we'll give our positive review for Nuki and Santa Claus Conquers the All Martians. Right. And we're back. I'll give you my review of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and then we'll hear from you about Nuki. So this movie, back in 1964, spent $200,000 to make this movie. And let's just say it really shows. Oh. And that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I am all for saving as much money as you possibly can. And right off the bat, it becomes very apparent that they were also very interested in saving money. Nice. Uh, you know, the Mars, it's full of these these rocks and scenery that it's clearly paper mache um, you know, the Martians have these hats that have this um, the sink piping that represents uh, uh, their antennae. Oh. And so clearly it looks like a bunch of families got together and just put together these costumes and the sets. You can tell that there were a lot of good family nights that went into this film. Little Johnny got to make some of those rocks. And it's full, and I mean just full of stock footage of, you know, ships and rockets taking off. And I'm totally okay with that because it's there. Why not use it? it just, why yeah. go? Why shoot all this new footage when you have all this great footage that's just sitting there on the shelf that nobody's going to use? Um, there's there's a shot of a uh, of a spaceship that looks like it's just a baked potato wrapped in foil <laughs> on a wire, but that's a good thing because it allows us to not be distracted by all this CGI and to just be able to focus on the story. And who doesn't now, like potatoes? Right. So getting to that story. The story of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Martians kidnap Santa Claus Mm. so that their kids can have presents on Christmas. And the reason they do this is because they see their kids watching all these Earthling programs on television, and it's rotting their brains. Mm. So they want their kids to be able to play with these toys and get out and be more active. So they kidnap Santa Claus. And again, great messages. Don't watch as much TV. Get outside, play with yeah. toys, that's, all good messages. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Let's talk about the casting. Ooh. There's a scene where they go, the Martians, they go and consult this 800-year-old Martian, and you would think, okay, they're just going to get some really super old guy to play this, which, you know, old people get all the roles these days. They, all the old people roles. They get them. So they took a middle-aged man, slapped some makeup on him, and said, you know, talk in this really screechy, high-pitched voice. And they let they finally gave a role to a middle-aged man. I love that. Yeah. So much. No, no typecasting. I love no. that. I love how accessible Santa Claus is in this. The movie starts out with a TV reporter okay. going to the North Pole, knocking on Santa Claus's workshop, wow. uh, the door, and uh, just has like this five, seems like maybe 10 or 20 minute interview that just really goes on and on. And it just shows to me that Santa Claus is really accessible. Yeah, and I like that. I love that. I love that. There's a polar bear that, that looks like it's going to grab these children at one point of the movie, but it's clearly just a man in a polar bear suit. You always see those messages at the end of the film that says, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. I saw that, and I knew, without even having to see that disclaimer, no animals were harmed in the making of this film because no animals were used in the making of this film. That's awesome. And then one other thing that I think I would mention is um, there's this robot that they enlist the help of to try to capture these children who Mm -hmm. who have escaped. And 
it looked exactly like a robot I made when I was in third grade. That is so charming. I. <clears throat> okay, I, I'm okay now. Yeah, that, that is. It awesome. took me back. Great memories. Anything that can make me feel good about my childhood. <sighs> anyway. Stacy, now I'm curious to know what you thought of a little film that you watched called Nuki. Nuki. Well, first off, not such a little film. It's a very, very, very long film in the sense of... Or maybe it's a little film with a big heart. There we go. I think that's the best way to put it. Nuki, made in 1978. It's a South African-German film. Basically, the plot is two lovely aliens. Um... (laughs) They're brothers. They something happens and they crash land in on Earth. One gets crash lands in America. Mm-hmm. The other one crash lands in Africa. And uh, pretty much the whole movie is they're trying to find each other. And they um, elicit the help of of scientists that are experimenting on the one, the evil corporate scientist in America that that he wins over. Um, as well as the tribal people, and they end up meeting together. And so first and foremost, Nuki is a beautiful story of friendship and family. One thing I did love about this movie, um, and I, I guess I learned to love this about the movie, is that there were there were no rules. I mean, most films find themselves adhering to a rigid plot that makes sense and flows in a structure that you can almost predict sometimes. It's more of a hindrance than yeah, anything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just, you guess it and you're like, this is the end of the movie. Yeah. Nuki? You couldn't do that with Nuki. You, <laughs> there was no way to, to guess where the plot was going and you were, you were just, uh, it kept you on your toes the whole time. For example, there's a clip where um, Nuki in Africa falls into a river and this raging river that's leading to a waterfall, and you're like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And instantly you see this shot of this giant anaconda python thing slither in the water, and you're like, that's coming after him. Nope, he just falls off the waterfall edge. Python never comes back into the story. It's very, very free structure. The rules of of movies, like, you know, you normally establish a rule um, and you follow it, like be it in this universe, gra- like gravity. You're like, oh, is gravity a thing here? Yes. And if it is, you follow that rule. Here they had animals that some spoke, some didn't. No rules. This this is Nuki in Africa. We don't need rules. Some people were speaking an African language, and then all of a sudden they were speaking English. At one point he could fly. Another point he can't. He's he's doing magic. He can't. It's just you don't know where Nuki is going. It was uh, quite the adventure. It's unpredictable. Uh, completely yeah. unpredictable. You want something that's gonna really just just twist and turns at every corner. Nuki, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I will say too, when it comes to like production, you normally get these, and like nowadays you get this a lot where it's everyone's into computer and anim- computer graphics, computer animation. Everything looks a little unrealistic, or at least it feels so. Um, Nuki really mastered that style from the 80s where it was kind of using puppetry. Master's a strong word. Nuki really used the style from the 80s where it was puppetry. You know, even Steven Spielberg in Jurassic Park had the like the practical dinosaurs there where they could touch it and it wasn't just put in later. Um, Nuki and his brother were totally these puppet creations. Um, they were They were honestly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of a pansy when it comes to scary movies. In the first shot, I was like, "Do I need? Do I need to turn the lights on?" <laughs> and I think Nuki really reserved a little spot near my heart. Maybe Nuki taught me to love again. Yeah, I'm so glad. 
Well, this has been this edition of Silver Lining Cinema. Two, another two great films that most people would not call great. But we found a way to find the greatness in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and Nuki. Stacy Harkey from Thank Studio you. C. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being on Screen Thank you for Cleaning. Having me. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. going to believe who just stopped by the studio for a brief visit. It's Matt Meese of Studio C fame. We thought it'd be fun. Well, I thought it'd be fun and and Matt graciously agreed to it. But uh, we've got a little old radio sketch here that we would like to perform. Uh, I'm. I'll give you a little background. It's it. It's about a uh, school aged, an elementary school aged detective. And it's kind of in the vein of all those old radio shows that uh, many of you may have uh, – you grew up listening to. So uh, we're just going to hop right into it and enjoy. Starring Matt Meese and Jeff, Jeff Simpson. Simpson. Get ready for mystery. Get ready for suspense. Get ready for Cliff Regan, school age detective. Today's episode – Traumatic deception. I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for Detective Regan here. Well, I, when I get out of jail, I'm coming to get you, Regan. Do you hear me? I'm coming to get you. The name's Regan. Cliff Regan. And when you're in my line of work, you get threats like this every day. This one was from Francis Fairwater, a no-good drama teacher I caught stealing school supplies and selling them on the black market. Oh, I almost forgot. I'm a private detective for the school I attend, Soft Shoe Elementary. I hadn't thought about that case in over a year, but then I picked up the newspaper and noticed Fairwater was released from prison on good behavior. I had to laugh. Good behavior wasn't in Fairwater's vocabulary. I was about to turn to the funny pages when I heard a knock at the door. Come in. In walks this dame with graying hair and a slim figure. She looked down on her luck which is probably why she was knocking on my door. Pardon the intrusion, but are you Cliff Regan, the famous detective? That's what my mom calls me. Her name was Beverly. Pleased to meet you. I'm Lady Catherine. All right, so her name wasn't Beverly. But I had a suspicious feeling it wasn't Lady Catherine either. Uh, what can I do for you, Lady Catherine? Oh, Detective Regan, I just had the most terrible news. Really, I'm just beside myself. This has just been the most dreadful experience I've ever experienced. Why don't we just take it from the top, slowly? She had been walking to Soft Shoe Elementary to pick up her nephew, Joey Morgan, when this kid jumps out of the bushes and takes her priceless gold necklace she had just happened to be wearing. When you're in my line of work... You hear the same sob story every day. She grabbed me by the coat and started to beg, just like a... Well, just like someone who begs. Please, Detective Regan, you've got to help me. You're the only one who can. I don't know, lady. I'm pretty busy here. Why don't you try the police? No, I I mean, uh, the police will just have me fill out a report and then they'll forget about it. No, no, I need someone who can offer quick results. You know, everyone in town says you're the best. You flatten me. You mean I flatter you? 
No, I mean you flattened me. You're stepping on my foot. Uh, forgive me, Detective Regan. Oh, but you will find my necklace for me, won't you? Of course I will. When you're in my line of work, it's your job. Lady Catherine hadn't given me much of a description on the kid who took her gold necklace, but it sounded like the work of the school miscreant, Shorty. Oh, hey there, Regan. Solve any big mysteries lately? <laughs> Maybe you figured out what the lunch lady puts in the meatloaf. Uh Enough small talk, Shorty. Where were you yesterday after school? Whoa, whoa, what's with all the questions? Am I in some sort of trouble here? You might be if you don't start talking. Oh, I'd love to chat if, uh, if the price is right. Save it, Shorty. You're not getting any of my money. I've got enough dirt on you to put you in detention until you're retired. All right, all right. Well, uh, let me see. Yesterday after school, I was, uh, burning ants with a magnifying glass. Ants, eh? You sure you weren't busy terrorizing a different type of ant? What are you talking about? Oh, why don't you just come clean? Isn't it true that you attacked Joey Morgan's Aunt Lady Catherine and took her gold necklace? No, it ain't true. Look, you gotta believe me. Why don't you ask Joey Morgan for yourself? Well, maybe I'll just ask Joey's Aunt Lady Catherine. You could, but I don't think it would do you any good. Oh, yeah? Why's that? Because Joey Morgan doesn't have an aunt. Well, Shorty's story checked out. Not only did Joey Morgan not have an aunt... But he had never heard of Lady Catherine. I had several questions on my mind. Who was this Lady Catherine? And why did she lie to me? Was there even a gold necklace stolen? And what did the lunch lady put in the meatloaf? As I sat at home searching for the answers, the phone rang. Regan here. Hello, Detective Regan. Lady Catherine here. Oh, Lady Catherine. What a treat. Detective Regan, I don't have much time to talk, but can we meet somewhere? I believe I have some information regarding my case that you might find very interesting. More interesting than the information I got from your nephew, Joey? Detective Regan, please. I've got to meet with you. It's not safe where I am. I'm afraid I... Oh, someone's coming. Who is it? I've got to go. Meet me at your office tonight at six o'clock. Lady Catherine, wait. What's going on? This case was like a hot stove. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I was heading out the door when suddenly it hit me. The door hit me right between the eyes. I must not have been watching where I was going. But if I hadn't run into that door, I may not have solved the mystery. Will Cliff Regan get to the bottom of the case of the stolen necklace? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Hello. That was a word from our sponsor. And now, it's time for the thrilling conclusion to Dramatic Deception. When we last left our hero, Cliff Regan, school-age detective, he was on his way to his office to meet Lady Catherine. Good evening, Detective Regan. It was Francis Fairwater, the no-good drama teacher I put away a year ago. Surprised to see me? Not really. I had a feeling I'd be seeing you tonight. I see. And how did you get that feeling? First of all, when I saw you in the paper that you'd been released from prison, I knew it was only a matter of time before you started some sort of scheme. When I figured out there was no Lady Catherine, I knew the woman who came to my office had to be a pretty good actor. Then I remembered you were a drama teacher, and that your favorite actress was Catherine Hepburn. Well done, Detective Regan. But you're wrong about one thing. 
There is such a person as Lady Catherine, and she really did have her gold necklace stolen by me. Fortunately, I was in disguise, so for all she knows, it could have been anyone. Why, it could have been you. Let me guess the rest. You had me come here so you could plant Lady Catherine's gold necklace on me. She's on her way right now with the police, and when they get here, I try to tell them I was helping Lady Catherine to find her necklace. Lady Catherine will say she's never met me. I'll go to jail, and Lady Catherine will go home with her gold necklace. But it won't be the real gold necklace, will it? You'll have held on to the real necklace. Am I right? Precisely. You know, Detective Regan, you really are the best. But I'm afraid your days of solving crimes have run their course. Now let's just sit tight, and when the police get here, they'll catch you. Gold-handed. Not so fast, Fairwater. You just confessed to stealing Lady Catherine's necklace, and I have a witness to prove it. Come on out, Shorty. Way to go, Regan. You really cooked his goose. What? No! Now we can sit tight and wait for the police. All right, Regan, now we're even. Boy, you sure did solve that mystery. Say, do you think we'll ever find out what that lunch lady puts in the meatloaf? Shorty, there are some mysteries that may never be solved. But when you're in my line of work, you've got to accept that. Yes. Oh, well man. done. Brilliant, Matt Meese. This kind of thing is so fun. Well, thanks again, Matt, for spending some time with us this morning. And uh, thank you for sharing your wonderful talents with us. Hey, if you enjoyed that performance by Matt Meese, be sure to tell your friends that you heard it exclusively here on Screen Cleaning. You can share it or go back and listen to it on BYURadio.org. Now, since we're getting pretty close to Halloween, we thought we'd perform a little service for you. If you're like me, then you love watching a good scary movie. And here's one that's appropriate mostly for the whole family. If the names Gomez, Morticia, Fester, Wednesday, and Pugsley don't ring a bell, how about this? I never watched the 60s sitcom on which this film is based, but as an 8-year-old, I was introduced to the 1991 film The Addams Family. And I remember loving Wednesday and Pugsley's fake, blood-filled, limb-slicing sword fight. Firm, I go, as well as MC Hammer's work on the soundtrack. IMO, the sequel, is the better film. The fun starts off with a big announcement from the matriarch of the family. Gomez. Caramia. Marvelous news. I'm going to have a baby. Right now. But not everyone in the family is happy about the new arrival. Children, why do you hate the baby? We don't hate him. We just want to play with him. Especially his head. Children, do you think we love the baby more than we love you? Yes. Do you think that when a new baby arrives, one of the other children has to die? Yes. Well, that's just not true. <sighs> not anymore. A common comedy formula involves placing people in settings where they clearly do not belong. In this case, that means placing dark and disturbed Wednesday and Pugsley in the care of the chipper counselors at Camp Chippewa. In the secondary but still compellingly written role of Pocahontas, guess who we have in mind? Our own little brunette outcast, Wednesday Adams. Not surprisingly, they're there against their will and at the behest of their new nanny, Debbie, who's really a serial killer known as the Black Widow, 
who plans to wed Uncle Fester, knock him off, and collect his massive inheritance. Oh, Fester, how much do you love me? With all my soul. Would you do anything for me? Anything. Would you die for me? Yes! Promise. Sure, the plot may sound a bit dark, but this film is really a family comedy with a touch of the macabre. Even Wednesday and Pugsley's attempts to get rid of their baby brother and Debbie's attempts to send Fester to an early grave are too much like bits out of a Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote cartoon to be taken seriously. It's the perfect film for those who'd rather laugh than shriek this Halloween. There's good in them dire hills. So, Cole, I want you to uh, press play on this song here, this next song, and I want you to guess what this film is before I spoil what it is. Matt Townsend just walked in the room. I'm wondering if he can guess what film this is from. Some classic music, too. You can't hear it? So you're definitely not going to get this one right. Just take a guess. Uh, uh, it's from Star is Born with Barbra Streisand. Good guess. Good guess. There are a lot of stars in this film. Cole, you probably know what it is because you've got the setup sheet, but uh, have you ever seen this film? I have, and I definitely recognize this music. I mean, this is up there with the 2001 Space Odyssey kind of music as far as recognizability. I think Don Schlein Don came running in the room because he heard the music. He loves this film, I'm sure. Yes, I do. This, growing up, this was... My favorite film of all time. It probably still is. It, it was close for me. It, it was a close second to Mad Mad World. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah. Uh, you didn't put enough Mads in that title, I though. Know. <laughs> I, I usually truncate that. It's a Mad 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 World. Oh, that was too many. So, yeah. um, great escape. Great, great movie. Escape. Yeah. Um, Steve McQueen. Throwing the baseball, riding yeah. the motorcycle. I just remember as a kid thinking how cool Steve McQueen was, especially in the scene when he jumps those barbed wire oh, fences on his motorcycle. You want him to make it, too. Yes. You want him to clear Yes. It. I've read the book, too, and uh, just an amazing story. Of, well, it's based on a true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Yeah. And it's these prisoners of war in uh, a Nazi Germany camp who decide that they're going to tunnel out of this camp, and they name the three tunnels that they start digging Tom, Dick, and Harry. Mm-hmm. And uh, just an edge-of-your-seat film. And uh, who would have guessed that uh, seeing a bunch of grown men, you know, scuttle across the, the dirt floor trying to get out of a prison would be so exciting, but it is. And well, I, when as that I, list of stars, though. Oh, my gosh. Why. Steve McQueen. Yeah, okay. James Garner. Yeah. Richard Attenborough. Yeah. James Coburn, um, Charles Bronson. Yeah, Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So it's not A Star is Born. Sorry, Matt, but uh, plenty of stars in this film. Go check it out. It's a great film that you can watch with your families. It's family-friendly and a great way to remember the great men and women who have served this country and continue to do so to this day. Well, we've had a great time here on the show. Again, we're here every Friday to give you the best in entertainment news. And this is a slice of the entertainment that you're going to get each and every week here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next week. 